Welcome to Beneath the Neon. My name is Paul. I'm Rob. And I'm Angelo. We are three guys from Las Vegas in long-term recovery looking to break the stigmas of homelessness, mental health, and addiction in the city we love. We're going to be bringing on some pretty inspiring people from our city. Our mission is to provide a platform to discover the humanity that's hidden by the stigmatized, digging deeper to reveal what lies beneath the neon. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Beneath the Neon podcast. And this week, we have a very special guest. His name is Christopher Darcy, and he is the assistant sheriff of the Metropolitan Police Department. So Christopher Darcy came and joined in on the conversation. I think it would be in line with what we're trying to accomplish is just to give an introduction to all the different perspectives that deal with the stigmas and mental health and homelessness and all that. And uh, it was interesting for me to hear a lot about what Metro's doing. I know he brought up some programs, Rob, that you researched. Yeah, the hot team. You know, I'm open-minded. Obviously, things change over time. You know what I mean? It's a thing in progress. I just, I'm not a fan. Yeah, I uh, I was happy he came. I was happy. I think that we got, you know, really some good insight on what it is that they're trying to do. And I love that they're trying to do. And I know that my personal experience with Metro has changed drastically. So like what I can tell you is, is getting to see some of the behind the scenes stuff. I know that their intentions are very much in line with ours. I don't know what stands in the way of them being able to do it outside of what you just described is it takes a long time for them to reculture certain things. And I think that, you know, I just have to trust that that's probably the case. And I mean, that's all the way across the board. Like your experience, Rob, with the culture is what keeps you hesitant because of our experiences with those green shirt uniforms. We think, oh, this is their homeless outreach team. Like I'm glad he came. And what I look forward to is being able to have reoccurring representatives from Metro come on here and discuss as we lay out this roadmap of what points we want to touch and we can start getting multiple people in the room and having the, the open discussions with them. And I really look forward to hearing, you know, live conversations about what they're doing. And this is what we're scene and, and letting that conversation play out. Because I think it's hard. I think it's hard to come in here and talk to three recovering addicts that have experiences with the police that aren't that positive. And he's got to, as assistant sheriff, there's probably a mandate of what he needs to make sure that he puts out there, which I absolutely respect. And I think it was a perfect way to start the conversation. I don't see it as the end of the conversation. It is our pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Christopher Darcy. So you're from Philly, you said? Yes. Okay. So how old were you when you became a police officer? Uh, I was 21 when I started working back there. I was young. Or is it ever in your trajectory to be a cop? Or did Not that really. just kind of It just kind of dawned on me. I ended up majoring in criminal justice and I took a couple classes from some really good instructors. One was an attorney who was phenomenal and one was a retired Cincinnati police major or something. I can't remember his rank. And he was a really cool guy. And I just remember thinking, maybe this is a career for me. Mm. And so it, it kind of all worked out at that point. And then 
this is a kind of a funny story, but so I was working as a police officer back there and I thought, okay, this is going to be my life. You know, my parents live there, my family, you know, you kind of moved down the street in my world right back then. I ended up in a situation where I'm like, yeah, I think I want to go West. So I tested for here in LAPD and I came and did a ride along at both places and I was watching cops on TV. And at the time I was watching a vice lieutenant named Bill Young. And I'm like, I want to go work for that guy. So subsequently I do, I come out here, drive my car, all the way out to Vegas. I test, I get hired and I worked in patrol. I was a beat cop downtown on the graveyard shift for a couple of years. And then I tested and I got to work in vice and I got to work for that person named Bill Young, who subsequently became our sheriff. And he was our sheriff for 40 years. Yeah. So that's kind of what brought me here was actually watching the cop show on TV. Very cool. Yeah. Wow. It recruited me. What's the word I'm trying to use? Because I can't think of it, but you guys have become like a flag bearer. What's the word? You guys are like- We're a model agency. That's um, what I'm Really, when to... it comes to use of, for a lot of things, really. Crowd control, use of force. Vegas is a premier city in America, and we're part of major city chiefs. And we're looked at often for our policy, how we do what we do by many other cities. And primarily because you do what you do so well, right? Like, I mean, I know that there's been a lot of time that has had to happen for you guys to reform and switch up from a a reputation that used to exist. But like, from what I've gathered is Metro's become that because they're doing so many things well. I agree. And the thing that I think differentiates a good police department from a great police department is that we're really critical of ourselves and we constantly change. Because when you don't constantly change, you never stay in front of the problem. So Mm. we really seek out and change when it's uncomfortable. And therefore, we're ahead of a lot of other agencies. So when we look at our policy, we wrote our duty to intervene, right? If an officer sees another officer doing something wrong, using force when he shouldn't, we've had that in our policy for a while. That they have to intervene. If they don't, they're disciplined. Right. Whereas there's some agencies that are just thinking about that now. We've already had that. Sure. You know, a lot of times it'll happen and an agency may not take as aggressive of a stance on it, assuming it won't happen again or thinking that maybe they got away with it. Right. With us, whenever we see something like that, it immediately triggers uh, an investigation. It triggers a rewrite of policy. What did we do? How can we prevent this from happening again? And there's really accountability to it. Right. We have folks that that's their job and we sit down and we go through training. We'll have We've retrained the entire department. We went through that process of collaborative reform with the Department of Justice because we knew at the time that we were shooting too many people that didn't have guns in their hands that probably shouldn't have been shot. Before we were told to do it, we went to the Department of Justice and said, hey, let's work together. Can you help us improve our department? And was it painful? Yeah. Like, was it uncomfortable for us to admit that, okay, we're, we're not doing things as good as we need to be doing. Let's get uncomfortable and fix it. And we came back with 78 recommendations and we accomplished every single one of them, right? With the exception of two, because we don't control the unions here. So at the end of the day, we really got uncomfortable and that's what's paid off for us now. Just about every single hot topic that you're hearing on the news about police officers, we've done all that. Like our policy is already solid on that. So we really don't have to make too many tweaks. But you know, those types of things that we've kind of addressed early on, I think is what makes us someone that people will go to to say, hey, how did you maneuver that? 
with the constant change that you're talking about, right? Changing the policies and, and the things that you guys do. Well, how long of a process is that to change a technique or to change the way you guys go about something? And then how long does it take for all the cops to be informed of that and like right. to have it implemented? You know, if it's something immediate, we push it out that night. If there's a safety issue, right? Like if we get some information that, hey, we need to change the way we're doing something because um, someone's going to get hurt or we learn a technique that could be used, say, against our officers, some, you know, some type of safety thing. We have the mechanism to push it out to every officer like real time. Oh, okay. Um, but that's just information, right? You have to train. So when you want to talk about de-escalation, right? I can tell you, I want you to de-escalate. But what does that mean? Right. Right. So we have to define you. it, which we've done. I think we're one of the first agencies to ever define what de-escalation is. Right. So we have a definition and then you really have to train it. You have to do it. So we have to have scenarios where our officers go somewhere and we're training them and they're practicing de-escalation, right? So we can't just train people where you go to a call, the bad guy pulls out a gun and you shoot them because then that's what our folks are going to do every time because that's what they think is going to happen. We have to train them that, okay, on 99% of the calls, they're going to de-escalate and they're going to listen. They may be upset. You got to let them vent. You know, you have to do these techniques that we use and, and then they're going to go, okay, you're right. They're going to calm down. They're going to comply. So our officers have to learn those speed speaking points, the ways to bring people down when they're emotionally upset and practice that. And that's the only way they'll get better. And then you have to mandate it by policy saying that you will do these things. And yeah. that's what we do. And that's what we're doing. And we have our reality-based training that we do. Every officer goes to every year. And what we do is we look at events that happen around the country and then we change it and say, what if that happened here? And we run them through scenarios where they're doing exactly the same thing, but we're showing them the outcome that we want so that, you know, you don't have a bad outcome like what happened to Mr. Floyd. So it, it's a, it's a constant process. You're never done. I can, yeah, you're never done. Right. We, in, in human services, we have models that are proven to work, but it's a human business. And so you're always introduced to something that you weren't really thinking of something that just doesn't come to mind because it's so rare and it happens not that often that you have to go in and create a policy on the spot. And you disseminate that by having a staff meeting within that day or the next day, this is what we're going to do moving forward. And it's hard to predict anything, I think. I mean, I think you have years and years and years and years of evidence to help set up for most situations, but not all. And if you show me a police department that hasn't changed their policy on use of force in the last four or five years, I will show you that police department that's headed for trouble. Sure. Because you have to stay current and you have to stay fresh on tactics and training. Mm -hmm. The foundation really, I think, for effective law enforcement in America. If you want to be successful in a city, county, or any municipality, right? You have to have good policy. If your policy isn't good, the whole foundation falls. Like allowing someone to step on somebody's neck, right? Like if that's your policy, you're going to have problems. So you have to have solid policy and you need to constantly work it. Then you need to have that training overlaid on it. You have to have every one of your officers trained in what that policy is. And it's got to be continuous and ongoing every year. And it's really hard. It's a sacrifice, but they have to go through the training, have to go through the training. And then you have to, without question, you have to have transparency so that when you do make mistakes, you know, you have the public can see it and then they can see that you're fixing it. So a good example of that is our officer involved shootings. When we have an officer involved shooting, we have a captain go out there that night. They give a statement to the news, what happened. We have a team of investigators and we have essentially two different teams. One that looks at whether the shooting was lawful and proper, along with the district attorney's office that comes out and this multitude of folks that, that looks at that from whether it was an acceptable 
acceptable shooting legally or not. Then you have to have your, what we have our critical incident review team. They look at it from a policy standpoint. It could be lawful, but we could avoid shootings like this maybe if we changed our training, right? So then we have that aspect of it. So you have those three layers. And then that top layer, if you do all that right, right? So you have your policy, you have your training, you have your transparency, and then you work with the community to build your legitimacy. When they see that you're doing those three things and that you're involving them in the process where they're part of it. So when we have our use of force um, review board or our tactical review boards after an officer shoots somebody, there's members of the community on that board, right? We bring people from the outside because we want their opinion. We value what they have to say. So when you start layering those four things, that's when you start seeing success in a community. But if you pull any one of those blocks out, you have a great policy, but you don't train it, you're going to have mistakes, right? You might have a great policy, great training, but if you don't show anybody then you're going to fail. And then if you don't have the community involvement, then you really failed because right. you don't have the support of the community. People are the police, police are the people, right? It goes back to that. So you got to have those four elements in place. And I think we've done a pretty good job at that. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. That's why we change our policy. We're right. a learning organization. We're very critical and we learn from our mistakes and we move forward. And I think that's what's helped us with the community here in Las Vegas. I feel like when I take a look back at the last few years, I see a lot more of long-term solutions than just taking people to jail from the police force, right? There's more programs available for homelessness, for drug addicts, alcoholics, stuff like that, to where there's more of a long-term solution than taking you to jail. You get another case, yeah. you get another, you know, and you just keep it cycling. solves through. nothing. I remember I used to get arrested or ticketed, arrested, sent back to the streets, ticketed, arrested, sent back. And what would happen is I'd get arrested on the warrant from the ticket. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an arrestable offense. It was that I never did anything when I was homeless, addicted to heroin, to take care of this ticket, this loitering or trespassing ticket. And then it would go to warrant and then I would get hemmed up. Of course, it was always by the same cop. <laughs> it was the same guy that always arrested me. Did he have, it, have it out for you or was he trying to help you? That's well, the question. Here's, you know? here's my opinion on that is I would tell you that they were partners. I wish I could remember their names because the one guy, he was shorter Hawaiian. The other guy was just taller, like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, white cop. The white cop, I believe, was just playing either he was playing the bad cop role or he had it out for me. Mm -hmm. He was not a pleasant guy. But the shorter Asian guy, he would put me in his car and he would talk with me. I remember we sat in his car for maybe 15, 20 minutes just talking and he's like, listen, man, he goes like, I know like you're struggling. You need to get some help. Like, do you want some referrals? Like, do you, I know I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks. I can come up with some referrals. He would talk me through it. Whereas the other guy was just kind of a dick. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had internal affairs for a few years. I was a commander. Mm. We have bad cops, right. right? We do. We hire from the human race. And sometimes people could maybe be inherently bad and we don't catch it. Or maybe they just change, right? They become soured in their job and they're just not, they're in a very negative spot. And like everybody in their life, right? People have ups and downs, right? So we have some cops that are really good. Then all of a sudden they're going through a divorce. You know, they spent too much money. They don't have any money and they're going through this myriad of problems. And that's why we created our police employees assistance program, right? Because they may be good people going through a bad time and we have to fix that, right? Because we spent a lot of money training and bringing these people on. If we can fix them and correct the behavior quickly, like it's... It's worth saving people, right? Like oh, and keep them from going down a bad road. But if it's somebody that we see through our programs that we'll get these tripwires and we'll see, okay, a couple complaints, they don't do the reports right, the few right. bad value, like then we know, okay, we have a problem. We'll still do the same thing, but then we basically will go through a process where we fix them or walk them out the door. 
because they can't be on our agency if they can't follow the rules and do the right things. We get some free counseling and there's a lot of people that can help if it's in an alcohol or some sort of a substance abuse program, just like the general public, right? We find them help and get them through. If it's a financial issue, we have access to financial counselors that can help them maybe get rid of or repackage their debt so that they can maybe not worry about all the bill collectors and make payments, you know, just like the, all the programs that are out there for so for it's all really us, your contracting out really you've yeah we don't we're not going to do it ourselves and help them restructure we find professionals that will uh, help just right. very well, similar to i think i heard that i think what i had pictured though was is that you hired internally people to like like i walk out of my office you know i'm gonna go see the psychologist in oh, yeah, no. their office. But we, have, like... we have a few people in our peep office that that's their job not to do it but to manage like a caseworker, sure. much like in terms of mental health care, like we want a caseworker to kind of manage that case. We have that ability to do it with our people because we mm -hmm. owe it to them. It'll be mandatory like that they, um, I mean, they get notified after an officer gets involved in a shooting or a critical event, you know, or it could just be the trauma from say one of our dispatchers who's handling a, a 911 call where somebody dies and she's listening to that person die and, you know, breathe on the phone until they take their last breath. And that is really traumatic. And, and I have to tell you, of all the positions in the police department, the folks that work in communications, uh, I give it to them because yeah. I spent a night down there one time and I left with the biggest hit. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that people will actually stay and do this job day right. after day because it's so taxing. You know, that type of thing, right? Because they need someone to talk to. They're stuck in a cubicle with a microphone and they, they don't necessarily get the level of attention maybe that our officers would get after a critical event because they're still working the channel and you know, the aftercare. So we've made it a point that we include them as we should have, you know, over the years into all the processes, all the different parts of the police department that come into that traumatic event, such as like a one October, right? Everybody gets that type of help. And that's the benefit of it. And that's what keeps our folks employed longer and it keeps them out of trouble and it keeps them healthy at home. So I'm going to stir the pot sure. and this is going to be really hard for me <laughs> to be objective about all of these questions, but I want to know kind of how you guys are dealing with homeless and drug addiction and the problems that they give you and why, what is the force doing? Like, cause my experience is the police would come through the channels and they would clear us out. Mm -hmm. um, do you, are you familiar with the, the tunnels? Well, I know about, you're or, familiar or the with home, the tunnels, the, but um, I mean to say more so like the policies, the whys, how you guys are dealing how, with the homeless. How we handle the yeah. situation. Could right. you speak on that? Certainly. Okay. So traditionally we would look at it as more of a enforcement type mentality, right? We would try to arrest people or think that we could use our authority to just solve the situation. But we've learned over the years and it kind of started with our mental health approach. We started with our crisis intervention training or crisis intervention team and call it CIT. And we would train certain officers on how to deal with people in mental crisis. And it kind of ties in also to homeless because we see a lot of mental health issues and drug issues with homeless mm -hmm. folks. So it all kind of ties together, but it started with that. And so we'd start mandating that they got sent on certain calls. So, and, and I'll just kind of walk you through the progression. So then we learned, okay, well, why are we only have certain officers. Maybe we need to send everybody through this training, which is what we've subsequently done. And then we thought, well, let's take that to the next step. Why don't we have a supervisor going to those calls to make sure that these are handled right? Because these could be dangerous calls. So now we mandate a supervisor will go to somebody if, if it's a crime of violence, not necessarily like say an encampment, right? But we're talking about somebody with mental health, alcohol issues, or uh, drug issues on a violent call. So we kind of elevated our response to that. And then we've kind of grown into, well, 
We're seeing the homelessness is a big problem within the valley, right? We're seeing is these, it illegal? Is what illegal? Homelessness. Being homeless? No, no. It's the behavior. Some behaviors like trespassing that that okay. would go yeah, into yeah. being I'm, criminal. I just it's not a crime to be homeless. Right. Okay. You know? Yeah, certainly not. So what we did as an organization is is looked at it and say, okay, well, we're never going to arrest our way out of this, right? We can't arrest people for this. We got to fix it. And like I said earlier, sometimes there's no one else to go, so we get called or medical, right? So right. police or fire are going to go out there. Either way, it's costing a lot of money for us to go out and handle it from a like a law enforcement capacity. I think one of the numbers and arresting somebody, it's, it costs about sixty five hundred dollars. If we just go out there and get them to services and can get someone to help them that's trained to do it, not necessarily law enforcement, probably costs us about $600, right? So from a budgetary standpoint, we don't want to arrest people for this. It's not an answer to the problem. And there's no reason why the jail should be the, one of the largest mental health providers in the county, right? It mm. shouldn't be only at the jail do you get help. Because it's so short term. It's, it doesn't solve anything. So my mom has some mental health. I, I've been lucky and blessed up until this point at least to not have any diagnosable mental health. But my mom does and she would go and I remember for years she would go to jail and she would do the whatever 30, 60, 90 day sentence and then they kick her out with two weeks worth of medications. Mm -hmm. And you think... Well, that's two weeks. It's all we got. Like <laughs> two yeah. weeks, you can be off and running again, you know? And I love that you say that because I think that that's one of the biggest issues is we lean too heavily on incarceration to play our mental health it, hospitals. It's not the answer. Certainly right. not. You know, that's my opinion. And a majority of the people that I work with, like I think anybody I would talk to would agree and say, yeah. I mean, our, our stance on Metro when we deal with these things is outreach, right? And trying to get the appropriate resources. But, you know, we have two different jurisdictions, right? We have city and we have county here. So I was going to ask yeah, you the about The city that. has certain people that they partner with, right? Like Help of Southern Nevada and a variety, right? Sure. So, so then we look at the county that maybe doesn't have as many or different ones. So our officers have to be very versatile and go, okay, this is city or this is county. And who do we have that can come out and help? Because that's what we want to do. We will do everything in our power to not arrest somebody. <laughs> like really, the way we, we have eight officers that work on our hot team now, our homeless outreach team. And their job really is when they find somebody who's homeless is to fix it as best they can that day without taking someone to jail. Like if the person needs a driver's license so that they can get a plane ticket, we'll facilitate that, right? It's worth our time to have these officers help facilitate somebody getting a driver's license and getting out of town or calling a family member maybe, you know, or, or they're off their medicine, like you said, but we can find out who their family member is or loved one and their loved one will come pick them up. We'll sit with that person until they get there. You right. know, like it's better to solve it from like a case management perspective. We don't want to them. But you're not case managers. Ugh. We need case managers. No, right. right? And I, so, what we were talking about yeah. before we started recording, this is a great segue. Like, <laughs> Right. We need case managers. That's how we're going to be successful is that Metro is partnering with folks from UNLV um, that will help be case managers. And we have the ability to create a safety net in the community. Whereas when our folks get out there, we can call on these different resources. We can help navigate, you know, and say, okay, well, maybe this person has an alcohol problem. So maybe we'll bring them there or, you know, maybe crossroads or whatever. And they'll go through this process and then our officers can let the case managers help follow that person. And we do. I mean, we've had so many contacts. I mean, we probably had 16,000 contacts in the last year, hmm. you know, and very few arrests. But I know we've saved like, I think almost 700 now from homelessness. 
like where we've gone and found something for them, much like what you do, right? Sure. And, and that's why it's so important that your organization, Metro, and everyone out there works together. And I'll, I'll say this, I think this is one thing about the badge, right? When you look at our badge, it's a star, right? Mm. Every one of those points, we can look at like an ability to connect a resource. So we're in the center because people call the police and we're Metro and we go, they know we're coming. So when we go, we have the ability to reach out in all directions to bring resources in. And then we have that power of our badge to help get people to show up. So when we call, they generally will come if we oh, ask yeah. for help. Unless you're so, me, you go the other way, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but if we called you and said, hey, we have no, a homeless guy in the yes. tunnels, yes. I'm calling you and I know you're going to take care of yes, it and I'll we're going to work there, together right. and get it done. So that's the one power that we have above a lot of other agencies well, it bothers we can bring me people together. To hear you talk about, you said hot team? Yeah, homeless outreach team. The reason it bothers mm -hmm. me is because I know nothing about it. And I know Metro's doing a lot of good work. I see you guys out there with help. And I know like what a lot of people aren't aware of, because you would think there's this idea that the police are bullying the homeless. Oftentimes I can tell you when we go to the flood channels or when we're in camps, you see signs. Hey, we're coming in two weeks, clean and go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, we, I mean, there's, there's ample notice. Like yeah, you guys yeah. get out of here. They're on their way. But that's just because I have boots on the ground and I get to see these signs and I get to, I kind of know what's going on. Like, but how is it that like there's this homeless outreach team made up of about eight officers that I've I know nothing about because it's four two person teams and there's two million people here. Sure, <laughs> That's but I'm the in the industry, right? And yeah. so like I don't know. I mean, I guess we could get political about it, which I really don't want to. But it just it's saddening to me that like really what we hear and what we see and what we know that you guys are doing is usually based around negative events. I would agree with that because that's what people talk about and that's what you hear. And right. like I said, there's almost 700 people that we saved that probably could yeah, testify that, hey, that cop was great. He sure. called my cousin and, and I've got a job now and thank you. Yeah. Right. But you just don't hear those stories. They're just not as yeah, sexy. I, you know, they just don't generate the attention. I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious about the 700 people. You don't have case managers, so you're outsourcing it to agencies like a lot of people, community partners. How do you know that you save them? How do, like, well, I'm, I'm curious. Like, it's hey, a good question. And I'll tell you how is it that we've started tracking them. So we look at them, whether we've got them temporary housing, permanent housing, and we have uh, a person on our agency, Dr. Annie Wilson, and she will track that and we'll make sure that the resources are correct. And we're trying to do something that I think that if the entirety of, the, or when I should say, because it will happen, the entirety of the community comes together, it's kind of a good start. What we have, we have the tools that we have and we're doing the best that we can. And now we have specialty courts and we're going to develop this partnership and we've got some grant funding coming and we're going to have these when case workers. When you say workers, we've got some grant funding, Metro, Metro, Metro has grant funding. Right. It's unfortunate, but it's like a slow process over sure. the years. I've been talking about mental health for a couple of years in this assignment, you know, that I have. And, and we're starting to see more traction, right? Even if we tie it back to what we're talking about, like some of these other large police organizations are diverting money to try to create a different scenario where maybe the police aren't going to calls about homeless and maybe police aren't going to calls about people that are on drugs or something and we can get them help. You know, that kind of help model versus arrest model. It's totally the way to go, 100%. Like we all agree upon that. It's just getting there. Like I think all of us would agree that that's the solution. Well, absolutely. But how but do I, we get there? Right. And that's the... That's the key. And how do you discern? How do you discern? That's that's the one gray area. Like when Rob and I go underground, we're not responding 
to a call. We're right. going there as welcomed people that are showing up. They know who we are. We've taken time to establish relationships. It's not a surprise. Nobody's wondering why we're down there. To send somebody to respond to a call that isn't law enforcement is where I start to get, I guess, fearful, but it's not for myself. The idea is, is how do you know something's not going to go wrong? I mean, how many yeah, situations you, you do you guys know. enter and you think, oh, this will be average, everyday domestic violence call. And the next thing you know, it goes haywire. If it's a social worker that's there with a case manager and that's it. I mean, how do they, you know, and so like it's discernment. How would we even be able to decide, hey, we don't have to send an officer on this one. We can just send so-and-so on this one because it's more of a social call. But then, and we were talking about it earlier, it, it almost makes sense like you have to blend it where you're pairing officers with. And That's the officer exactly plays it. the second. Yep. They're not we stand the back. We're there to make sure that no one gets hurt. Almost right. like a move-out situation, a domestic situation. People oh, okay. call us, hey, I need to go in and collect my belongings. You know, my ex is in there. I just don't want it to be any trouble. Our officers will go, okay, and we'll just stand there and, and kind of watch and make sure no one does anything wrong. Or And then they get their belongings and they leave. And it, it could be the same model, really. Our folks can respond and, and uh, we're going now anyway. So, you know, <laughs> hey, we, we'd rather have you, other folks sure. come help solve the situation. We'll stand there and, hey, as long as no one's pulling out a gun, a bat or a knife or whatever, and, and we're good and get them and the help that they need. It seems like it would support the officers more. Do you guys find that dealing with the drug issue right now is I'm curious what the climate looks like for you guys. Is it more rampant? Is it stayed consistent? Are you guys seeing things that you're, you know, new all the time? Is it, do you feel like it's slowed down? Like, do you, I guess I'm not sure if I'm wording yeah, this no, properly. I think I understand where you're, okay. you're headed with it. I think the philosophy of drug enforcement is changed in that we really see the danger in fentanyl mm. and some of these transnational organizations that are bringing these chemicals in that are really dangerous. I don't think anyone would argue that fentanyl shouldn't be used. You know, it's, it's people are dying. It's really strong and, and it's scary that, that some of there's these... something even called car fentanyl. Yeah. It's even yeah. like 5,000 yes. times stronger yeah. and, than And I've never understood that. Like, how could something be 50 times stronger than heroin, right? Yeah. Like, I think, <laughs> come on, how do you even measure that? Like, yeah. I thought how that was the that? top dog, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. Now you're saying it's 50 times more? Yeah. Like, uh, how could how could you be that messed up, right? right? Like, how? But I think that you're seeing a shift away from, obviously, marijuana mm -hmm. and some of the lower level type drugs. You know, we always worry about meth and we always worry about heroin and fentanyl and then the opioid crisis. I mean, there's there's definitely an impact from that. You know, it's hitting people and- It's um, hitting everybody. It's hitting everybody. Yeah, it's hitting like in every class and every sure. society, you're seeing issues with that. Is and, there any kind of empathy from police officers? Because heroin is a felony charge that comes with real time. But when we start to really dissect what we just said, how the opioid crisis is starting to span outside of drug users, your traditional addicts. Right. I, I have my- foster mother who is and we would call her a normie she's not an alcoholic she's never drank to the point of burning any part of her life to the ground right like she injures herself major back surgery she gets put on percocet tens mm. she knows nothing about what's about to happen to her years pass by and i'm on my heroin addiction i get clean we start talking again after i regain her trust eventually one day she says you know i think i'm addicted to opiates and i said well why do you say that and she goes oh well and she just 
describes the whole situation and she goes, but if I, I start to get anxiety when I'm about to run out, if my doctor, if I go to fill the, the script and it's not ready right away, I start to get really sick. And I am just a long way to say like, it's getting people that aren't criminal. Is there any empathy now when you look at dealing with this opioid crisis, understanding like the opiates have such a driving force in them that it's really out of character. People start to begin to act out of character and do things to maintain this addiction. Are officers aware of that? Certainly. And and I think there's a couple of things that impact this, right? We have more drug specialty courts now, and we look at people that are hooked on it as victims. We, we want to go after the people that are, well, one, the people that are importing and the dirty docs, the doctors that mm-hmm. are prescribing that. And I'm not talking about someone that if you go in with a surgery, like a couple discs replaced, they give you 10 days worth of whatever. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people that recruit people that don't have problems to go into the doctor's office where the doctor is complicit and writes a bunch of prescriptions for an enormous amount of drugs. Then they go out and they get these folks to get their prescriptions filled and then they get paid and then they turn around and sell all those opioids for money. That's what I'm talking about when I say dirty doctors, right? They're a criminal enterprise hiding behind a physician's coat. Yeah, it's like mafia. Right, and and they're making enormous (laughs) amounts of money, right? right? Right. And they're victimizing people like, you know, sometimes your mom, because she can't get the prescription, she'll go to someone like that, right? Right. And they find out and then it becomes these pill mills and it becomes kind of a, a whole criminal organization right? And hand in, we work with the DEA. We have task forces. I have, they were report to me and we've gone out there and we've arrested these doctors. And sometimes it's a challenge, right? Because it's a doctor. Like they're not going to get the 30 years traditionally. Now people are starting to see it. Judges are giving stronger sentences. It's become more of a problem. But initially I can tell you one case we went in, we had to do 25 buys. Uh, to get this prosecution on. <laughs> the doctor was so familiar with our undercover at that point, you know, they knew each other, right, from going in. We, we've kind of turned the corner on that and we're getting more efficient and we're getting prosecutions, whether it's state or through the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we're starting to see that impact where they know we're watching. Have you ever seen a street-level dealer have to have that many times where an undercover goes in to buy from them 25 times in order to get a case to stick? No. And, and generally, it's it's not just a physician. It takes more than that one person, right? You have to have somebody else in the office, and it's usually somebody from outside the office that can recruit people because they have to have licenses, right, to go get the prescription. So we've seen cases like that over the years, and it's frustrating. But I also understand from a prosecutorial standpoint, they really need to have all the evidence so that when we walk into court, there's no doubt, and that jury will convict that doctor. Because you go through an awful lot of work to take the chance that somebody might walk away after that. You're also dealing with a different perspective, right? Like what he's doing could be legal. You have to. Correct. Whereas you catch a street dealer selling meth on the corner. It's a lot easier to yeah. what yeah. he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. And you want to track yeah. it, right? You it, have to track the, white, the money right? and yeah. the drugs. <laughs> and it takes time because we're looking at where the money's going and we're following sure. the money, right? Like they always say, follow the money. Mm-hmm. So it, it does take a little bit more work. So I understand. I mean, in reality, you do need more effort that goes into that case. Totally get it. But I, I mean, get it, that it, I think what, what's hard to wrap my head around that is is that the doctor has the ability to impact more lives than the meth dealer because your normal hardworking people that are mm-hmm. not in the criminal world are trusting the doctor correct 
Yeah, on the backside, you exactly. some kids sit on the corner selling dope. It's very obvious. It might sure. take years to figure out that that doctor's doing that, and he's already caused years of wreckage before sure. you catch on to him. To people to that weren't complicit, buys. yeah, they just weren't trying to get involved in a heroin addiction. Like when I called my heroin dealer, I knew what I was doing. Yeah, when I went to the doctor, I thought this was a very legal <laughs> action. Then yeah. look at me, I'm doing good for myself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But that's scary. Yeah, and I mean, I've never done it, obviously. Sure, but I mean, it must be so good that these people get hooked on it right oh, it, it must be incredible right <laughs> Not that they get hooked on it that they'll do anything you know to it's, get it that's just something it's that i don't odd. understand i mean but, i don't even know that we yeah. should have this conversation because there comes a point when it's not that good anymore yeah right like it right. comes a point where it's more effort more of a drain it's there's more negative and that's where i start to get really sympathetic for this this cause of opioid addiction is because what i realize is is my own experience tells me that for the last year and a half of using heroin i wanted nothing to do with using heroin nothing hmm. Everything in me wanted out. It's that physical demand that drove the need to continue to do it. And then you start to build these fears, these fears of what does that withdrawal look like? And this is a true story. Every time I tell this, I feel stupid, but true story. So I try to quit doing heroin right when I started doing it. I must have only been on it for maybe nine months to a year. And I went cross-eyed about 13, 14 hours into the withdrawal because I couldn't sleep the night, right? You can't sleep when you're withdrawing. So I stayed up and I, I would try to close my eyes and I'm open my eyes and I just laid there all night withdrawing. And the next morning we go out and we're in the car and that was our thing. We would try to drive the 215 just a time would pass and I'm sitting in a parking lot after a couple hours of doing that and all of a sudden I couldn't see straight each of my eye wouldn't connect one thing they were looking at their own things and I remember I had to close an eye just to see right and from there on I built this fear that I'm not gonna be able to quit heroin my body will not respond to the withdrawal of quitting heroin wait why are you laughing at me (laughs) I can just picture your eyes (laughs) it's a funny visual yeah, whatever. Yeah. Real talk. Now, of course, I've since withdrawn since that point, and it wasn't as dramatic effect. But like, I remember I would make it ten days, and I'd still be as sick as I was on day one. And you give up. What is the point of feeling this bad when all I know I have to do is call one guy, spend ten dollars, and I'm better? Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there comes these like milestones when it comes to opioids. It does surpass how great it was in the beginning when really it flips. And it's like I always say when I talk about heroin, that was my drug of no choice. I eventually lost the choice in heroin. I wow. had to do it. That's why I think it's not a criminal issue as much as it is a treatment issue. And the treatment model sure. is the way. If we put you in jail, you're just going to get out and you're not going to get the help and you'll be right back. It's a revolving door and it costs a lot of money. Cheaper to treat and change someone's behavior. So now I would agree 100% with what you said, but to play devil's advocate, what happens when the treatment behavior, the, the behavior that's in need of treatment crosses the criminal lines and then you give that guy a chance. I have a pocket full of stories that I really can't because of HIPAA, like, but I've had clients that were given that opportunity that turned around and committed a heinous criminal act. And how do, how do you defend yourself against the pushback? Because it happens all the time. Well, they knew this about him. If you look at his record and really like you guys gave them a chance mm-hmm. because they have an addiction to deal with. And then the criminal behavior breaks through regardless. Well, I think there's a couple layers to that, right? I think the first thing is they have to be responsible for their conduct and just being high or drunk. It may be a factor, 
but it shouldn't absolve you from what you did. Mm -hmm. You still should pay some price for that. So depending on the situation, right? But say somebody is looking to find money for drugs because they're in a position where they have to have it. So they go in and break into somebody's house and steal whatever and, and try to get the money. And I think you should pay something for that, right? There should be a consequence to that action. But along with that, if you want to change the behavior, you have to get them off the drugs. Sure. So there should be a punishment and a treatment plan and they should be held accountable to that. And if they're not held accountable to that, then there will continue to be punishment so that there's a negative consequence to the behavior. Or why would you ever change unless they just wake up and choose to change? But you really have to focus on that treatment. And we know falling out or having a setback, that's part of recovery, mm -hmm. right? So you're not going to say, I'll never drink again. And most likely you will drink again, right? right? And we have to know that going into it. And when they do, we get them the help to get them out of it. And I heard it that usually when people try to quit drinking, right, that they'll probably have a fallback maybe two or three times in their effort to do that. I don't know. Maybe you would know. That's but a they're, super low they're, number they're, yeah, in my yeah, world. But, I, I, yeah, maybe I'm more than that. Right? Right? Like, yeah, but, yeah, but <laughs> maybe it's 20 times, yeah, right? Yeah. But knowing that, you know, from experts, it would, of time, experts <laughs> it would know, right, that we build that into the, the system as to where you know that that's going to happen. Well, and, that's an interesting. I want to look that up now because who knows? on average they may be a lower number than us hard cases i don't know <laughs> well you know it's got to be both ends right is, you yeah got the overachievers yeah, yeah. and the from what i know it's usually two or three decades but that's okay <laughs> yeah so the other thing i want to talk about is marijuana legalization i read a book and it revolutionized my thought process. And the best way to sum it up would be, I think I brought this up in an earlier podcast, we legalize or we criminalize alcohol sales and the mafia takes over the bootlegging of it and criminal activity starts to you know, develop around bootlegging and brewing and all that. Then we re-legalize alcohol and, and it completely cripples organized crime for a short period of time and they have to find a new primary source of revenue. So I read a book that explains how that's done on a global scale by legalizing drugs and alcohol would be ideally as you almost could eliminate criminal activity associated with drugs and alcohol. The money that's spent trying to pursue the enforcement could be used to counseling resources. Right. job development, case management, putting them in a position to better seek the services that they might need to overcome their addiction or alcoholism. And then there is a money side from if we are the ones that are legalizing the drugs and we are the ones using and supplying it, we're making the money off of it so that it self-funds itself. Now these, by, by having, you know, medically pure heroin that you go in instead of a methadone clinic, you would go into a heroin clinic and you would use heroin under the supervision of a medical assistant and then you would have to see a counselor and then you know all of that but it's generating its own money now and then lastly the medical piece would be that you're now you've eliminated all of the medical problems that are coming with using illegal dirty cooked drugs and dirty needles and now I, I that's a lot of information I guess what I want to get back to is have you seen the culture change with marijuana Yes, I think the culture has changed. And when I say like our attitudes on it, not like just your attitudes, or, or the, but the, all of it. I mean, is there a lot of criminal crime, or is there a lot of criminal behavior centered around marijuana still? 
I would say I think it's a little too early to tell, right? I don't. I wouldn't commit to that yet. Fair enough. People said that when the dispensaries opened, crime was going to skyrocket around the dispensaries, right? Like it was going to create these incredible crime waves around there. I remember well, we that. measured it, and it didn't. It didn't. People said there are going to be robbed left and right, and that didn't happen. It did in other states, right? It depends on how your process is. You know, our dispensaries and the in the process of opening them up and working with Nevada Dispensary Association, there was a lot of communication between law enforcement and the industry and, you know, within the state and all the different rules and regulations and how they secure their facilities and how this process was going to be. Because we learned from watching some other states, right? right? And those after us will have the benefit of the things that didn't go sure. well here. And I don't know from anecdotally sitting here, looking back over the last few years that we've seen an explosion of crime related to it. No, um, I was asking the reverse. Have you seen- A reduction. A reduction in, I mean, you're obviously not res- arresting people for smoking it as often, right. I'm sure, right? Like, right. But what about dealing? Well, there's a couple factors that come into play. We definitely, I would say, aren't as focused on marijuana because we're not getting the complaints. The issue that we still have with marijuana is the black market. Right. Right. We have seen an increase in the black market of really? marijuana. That's what we see. And I will tell you from a crime-related standpoint, we're seeing a lot more disputes that involve in shootings and murders involving marijuana because of the black market market. So what we see is the cost of marijuana at a dispensary is say what it is that we know that there's so much marijuana being produced in America right now that there's a black market. And a lot of it is finding its way. And okay, if you're going to pay 80 bucks, say whatever the prices are, 80 bucks for whatever amount, and you can buy it on the black market for 40 bucks, people are choosing to buy it on the black market for 40 bucks. And then that is leading to ripoffs and robberies mm-hmm. as they you know do multi-pound deals in a parking lot. We see the shootings and the crime that way. But in terms of the average, like I think what maybe what you're talking about is like people breaking into houses to support a marijuana habit. Is that reduced? I don't well, know that we see that, you know, I but hope nobody has yeah, ever done that yeah, in the yeah, history yeah. of I life. Like I don't see that, but yeah. we, we definitely see violence and shootings related to so the really, black market then for I'm, sure. What I'm asking, the answer would be no, like it, it hasn't helped the black market arena. But that's if, not to say long-term. Sure. Right? Like, sure. I, it's I, so the, new. Right. There's a process. Like mm-hmm. eventually, I think throughout the years, and maybe it'll take 10 years, but I think the prices will settle right at a certain point. Predictively, I think most states will legalize it. Yeah. And depending on the presidential issue and, and the that level of position on marijuana, it could be completely federally legal. It could be not. I think that's inevitable. Like, yeah, I think so too. I mean, my opinion. I mean, I think it's inevitable. You know, the toothpaste is out of the tube with that. I right, think, you know, right. it's out there, so you're never getting it back, <laughs> right, right? So right. I think inevitably it will be out. And then I think then you might see a settling of prices. And, you know, I haven't studied prohibition. Like, it'd be interesting to go back and look, though, right? And, right. and maybe that book does that, compares that model sure. to where it normalized now. Because, like, I mean, you can make the argument people commit crimes because they're drunk, but it's not as much as you think of a meth-crazed, right. you know, person right. trying to And I know that, like, habit. you know, Alcohol-related crimes haven't necessarily faded away completely, but you don't see somebody on the street corner trying to sell alcohol. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you don't. And I think eventually that's how it would be with marijuana. I think eventually, but you do see that now because you can grow it now. And, and and the second part to that, I mentioned a couple parts, is you know the appetite for prosecution, 
right? I'm not a prosecutor, you know, and I don't want to sit here and speak for uh, Mr. Wolfson, our district attorney, who's a good friend of mine. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, you have jury appeal. Is there an appeal for juries to arrest somebody for an ounce of pot or, or more than the, the ounce? You know, say somebody has a pound, right? You know, is that something they want to waste? We have only so much time in the courtroom, right? So many judges, like that's not a case that's going to be winnable. And, you know, grow houses are still a problem, right? We still see houses that are being chopped up. And we've had some ones in the last few months where the entire house, I mean, we're talking an 18-wheeler full of pot, right? I'll I'll show you a picture. Like, it's unbelievable how much pot is grown in this house, you know? And that's competing with the the legal businesses that are complaining that, hey, we're being undercut. And these are the folks that are doing illegal delivery services. They still advertise like they're legal, right? Yeah, I think the thing that's handicapping the legal the most is the amount of tax. And the tax. Like you're saying, like, from what I hear, there's been no escalation in price, right? Like it's $50 for an eighth of weed and it's $100 in a dispensary because it's almost 100% tax. Plus it's higher and, you know, you got to pay for shipping. And now that it's actually a chain, like an actual corporate chain, like there's so much more that you're paying for. But yeah, yeah. Instead of just... The average (laughs) cop on the beat's not going to know if you have it in a bag, right? Like we're not going to know where it came from. Right. We'll only know if you have too much, multiple ounces. And, and And so that... That's really kind of minimize what you're paying attention to when it comes to marijuana now. It's just, it, do they have the legal weight? And if they do, they're good? Yeah. Interesting. So you're the lieutenant, not the, you're no. one of four lieutenant sheriffs, correct? No. Well, I'm an assistant sheriff. So it goes sheriff, under sheriff, and there's three assistant sheriffs, of which I am one. I, why did I think you were a lieutenant sheriff? I did, Were you there's when no, I met there's you? There's no rank as lieutenant sheriff. That's I was a deputy chief. That's not a real thing? I, I, yeah, it's not a thing. <laughs> you just combined two <laughs> big words. It's not a thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's not a thing. I was a deputy chief when we met. Okay. I, be, I believe. Yeah, I was a deputy chief when we met. I got promoted. And I have the Law Enforcement Investigations and Support Group. And that's a big fancy title that means about 1,600 people that work on the police department. And it's a couple different what we call divisions, one of which is Homeland Security, which is counterterrorism, mm-hmm. just kind of an investigative services division, which is homicide, robbery, fraud, all the different types of investigations, as well as I have the Crime Lab and Criminalistics so the DNA lab and everything. And then I supervise our support division, which is all the vehicles and records, communications, all of our dispatchers. And then I have internal oversight, which is basically all of our use of force investigations. That's all under your supervision? Correct. Officer-involved shootings, our critical incident review team, our policies, everything um, surrounding that, our use of force review board and tactical review boards. And really a a myriad of of other things kind of reside in the portfolio of this assistant sheriff position. And there's two others. One essentially has the jail, all of corrections and internal affairs and personnel. And then there's one assistant sheriff that oversees all of patrol, which is traffic and all that. I also have canine and air support. I have a whole variety of things. Yeah, it sounds like you have the heavier workload. for the others? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I know. Basically, the jail yeah, and yeah. internal affairs. I would want the jail. Patrol. I'm good. Yeah, the patrol. <laughs> so patrol, I mean, they're all commensurate, right? They all have responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's just a little different, you know, True. a little different. But the three of us work together on a daily basis with the sheriff and undersheriff. And our team, essentially, of, of five of us, you know, we wrestle with the issues. We make decisions. And, you know, our job is to support Sheriff Lombardo and his vision. And we accomplish the strategies and the goals that we set out. And we make sure that that's done 
done every day and uphold the, the values of our police department. I think Sheriff Lombardo has done amazing. So I didn't know this. I didn't know this five years ago. I didn't know this before I started leadership. It's definitely, I think, as I grow professionally, as I get in with Shine Alight, as I start to kind of eat positions in the recovery community that have put me in rooms with people like you or the DAs and, you know, and I start to, and I think I got to understand more about where we've come from or how we're doing or what is our natural response to these things. And you've mentioned specialty courts a number of times. And um, I just think he's done a great job. I get to sit in the specialty courts and I get to listen to judges that I thought personally were always out to get us. <laughs> you know, you just think yeah. nobody's on our side is what you think. I've realized seeing this from a whole new perspective now over the last almost six years, I, I should say that really this town is really doing a lot to try to intervene and to play a, a more active role in drug addiction, in homelessness, in mental health. I love that, like, and again, I've referenced this before and I, I, my fact checker hasn't corrected me yet. So I think that I'm going to say it again and hope that I'm right. But I know like the whole, it all started to change. They started defunding the mental health hospitals and giving that to law enforcement and giving that to incarceration, like what I've seen now is, is those places are starting to come back up. I can tell you historically from my perspective as an officer, I never really remember us getting more funding for mental health. Like I don't remember us saying we're hiring more cops because we've taken on this duty. This is one of those things where I think the states, because generally it was a state funded thing. I and, don't know that I meant it, give yeah, you funding. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, meant give I think, you the responsibility. Of. That's it. That's yeah, what I, I meant. They we cut, cut the job without yes. the money. Yes, <laughs> what that's what I meant to say. They cut yeah. the funding and then gave you the responsibility of dealing with yeah, it. Yeah, you yes. deal with it because there's nobody else. Yeah. So the police took it on because there was no one else and we had to do it. We knew that there's a, a portion of it that does lead to crime. So there's that connection where you can say, mm -hmm. well, it's your job because it leads to crime. But there's this only a small percentage of that really leads to crime, you know, right. and, and now we're, we're picking up all that responsibility. It is good that people are starting to think maybe we do need to have somebody else pick up some of these responsibilities. We, we would never argue with that, but we welcome that. We, that's right. what we want because that's how we'll solve these problems without our police officers being put in situations that maybe they're not prepared for, or they don't understand. And there's a big difference, Paul, in an officer that's been on right out of the academy for a year, then say the five to seven year officer, and then somebody that ends up with eight. 18 to 20 that's still working in patrol. And then I knew someone that was a patrol officer around the 28 year mark. That 28 year mark patrol officer is mature. They've been around. They're problem solvers. They're people, people. They like people sure. or they wouldn't be in that position after all that say, time. What keeps you in patrol yeah, yeah, for 28 yeah, years. Right. Yeah, but they like it, right? right? They really get something back from it. So there is a difference. And I know many officers that come on and like I always say this, right? When you become a cop, the first three, four, five years, you tell everyone you know you're a cop. The remaining 25, I tell nobody, right? right. You know, like it's just not, it's, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it, no it just becomes, yeah, it just becomes not as important, right? Right. So it's not about the authority, right? It's about connections and your profession and, and your life and people. Whereas sometimes I think initially, and we can train people this all day long, but you know, sometimes it's a maturity issue. We really like to hire people that have had some life experience that have been in the military, that have been in college, that, you know, have had life experience, that maybe life hasn't been great. They appreciate and they can communicate better and they can talk to people and solve problems. Well, empathy. Empathy, empathy right? The right. problem solvers. That's what we go to problems. You know, yeah. we handle 300 million 911 problems per year. We go out there and have to try to solve them. The plan with the UNLV students 
and pairing them possibly as social workers with metro officers. What was the choice for choosing students instead of people with like larger work history, just kind of touching back on what maturity it, is? Yeah, it's a partnership um, with the university and, you know, the price is right, obviously, right? right? And we have people that are fresh in the field. And I mean, that's just the beginning, right? This is a long-term program. This isn't something that stops here. And we eventually will have more case managers and with grant funding, we can help support some of that and the community partnerships. And really it's, it's not that they're taking over for anyone else out there in the community. It's just one more layer for us to help so that we don't have our officers trying to do it because they're not really well, I mean, built for they that, didn't go trained to for that. For it. They didn't go to school for it. So right. that's why. And we found a lot of success at Metro partnering with UNLV. Historically, you might think colleges don't, you know, support, like maybe they might be more liberal and policing theoretically is more conservative down, you know, historically and that colleges and police wouldn't work. I can tell you that my experience in Las Vegas, it is the complete opposite. We partner with the university on just about everything. Anything we can, we do. Like, And I've done it through the last 15 years, at least on my career and my, you know, leadership positions. And we value the folks there so much. They they provide so much to the community and it's really been beneficial Sure, because it provides authenticity to things that we might want to study, you know, like the saturation patrolling in a neighborhood work. If we go and we do the evaluation, people think, oh, you did your own study, of course. But we have an independent group of people that may not necessarily agree with us, right? Which is awesome. And they'll look at it and tell us yay or nay. And it provides this level of credibility to our decision-making that I don't think a lot of agencies, either they don't have the university that is willing to do it or they don't have that type of relationship. Or they don't have the humility. Or they don't have the humility because sometimes they'll tell us that what we're doing is wrong and we go, okay, you know what? That's where the rubber, you have to be willing to change and admit that you're wrong, right? And say, okay, well, we're going to fix this. We may not like it. It's very uncomfortable. It's not what we wanted. Right, because your best minds decided this would work. Right. Your boots on the ground, I've been doing this for 20 plus years and I think this is our solution and then to have a 23 year old college yeah. student go no yeah. your numbers aren't your it's numbers aren't work. working <laughs> yeah but you got to listen to yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. You got to. You have to say, yeah. okay, I think you're right. Yeah. As much as it pains me to admit it, you know, we're going to change and we're going to do it your way. Does and, saturated and, policing in communities work? I'm curious. Like okay. you, you said so, that and I, I know what you're talking yep. about. We're talking about the Twain and Palos Verdes areas. Yep. We're talking about Penwood. You know what I mean? We're mm-hmm. talking about where every time you turn around, there's a cop turning a yep. corner. Okay. <laughs> Police matter, right? Yeah. The saturation. But what they do matters more. Oof. So yeah, putting cops in a neighborhood, great. It's not going to make that big of a difference if they're not doing the right things. That's where becoming community partners matters. That's where we're not stopping every single person, right? This is spending time there, getting to know people, maintaining friendships, you know, professional relationships with all the business owners, people in the community, investing into it with non-police activities, spending time. And when I had Northeast Area Command, every time we had a shooting in this, we do this now, and this is built into a much bigger program, but we would set up a pop-up easy up tent and we would go into that neighborhood and people would look at us like we were crazy, but we'd set up out there. We'd try to get people to come out. We would bring providers, it would bring diapers, and we'd cook out hot dogs. And we wouldn't say a word like other than, hey, we're here. We know a traumatic event happened and we're here for you. And it's what people initially thought, hey, we're trying to get informants, you know, like the negative, oh, the cops are out here or whatever. And over time, we kept doing it and doing it. And finally, now in these some some of these places, people are used to it. They come out and we've developed friendships and relationships. And sometimes they tell us stuff, sometimes they don't. But they know that if they do, that 
you know, that we're going to do the right thing and, and that, that we're there for them in that neighborhood. And it's building sustainable relationships in communities is what matters, not just putting cops there. Right. You put a different cop in every night and they're stopping people. They're just trying to get to work. You're going to make everybody mad. But you you spend time in that neighborhood and you find out who is the problem. And eventually they'll tell you and they'll say, this guy is dealing drugs and right. running hookers out of this place. And we've had enough and we trust you enough now to tell you. And then we can take care of it from a criminal justice enforcement aspect. And then they generally thank us. But sure. that's not easy, and it's not in one night, and it's not simple. You say that, and <laughs> we've had a few instances. I almost feel like it would be easier for us to get him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> not that like that would matter because you know whatever. I just I I couldn't imagine, and I've never thought about it from that kind of a perspective where cops have to build relationships within like a community, a small small community. When I think about it, I think you guys are talking to the politicians. You guys are talking. You know, what I mean, the, yeah. I don't think that on a ground level you're getting to know the owner of the Seven Eleven well enough oh, to yeah. have a dial right. Like, I mean, it makes perfect sense once it clicks because even at freedom house i know every cop that that drives around i know them all yeah i know them all like i can talk to them i wave yeah. to them they know me by my first name like i know them all um so it makes sense when you put it on that grand scale but i never really yeah and that that's the type of policing we want in las vegas right right we want our police officers to know people in their neighborhood by their name and go in there and say hello and say, hey, you, you need anything? Or, hey, just, you know, happy New Year's, right on New Year's. And hey, have a great year, you know, and have those types of relationships with business owners, with people in the community. And I feel yeah. like that's the most misunderstood part about your job is we know what we know. We know what gets dramatized in the media or even rather like fiction, you know, TV shows and movies and all of that. Um, but like all the dark, quiet moments when you stumble across babies, when, you, when you're dealing with kids. Like I look at my three-year-old and I grew up in a crack house. I remember I once cut my finger with a pencil sharpener just because my mom had been in the bathroom for so long that I had to figure out a way. And this was in Arizona and I was only in Arizona for kindergarten and first grade. So three to five years old, right? So I could put my finger under it so I could show her that I was bleeding. And I look at my three-year-old and I think, man, that I couldn't imagine putting them through that. I was eight years old when I was kidnapped. I was, and it's cops that responded to all of it. You know, my, the cops are at my house frequently. My mom was a prostitute. There was a lot of issues going on. And I can't imagine day in and day out of that. Like my job is sad because I get to deal with the grieving parents or the parents that, the parents is, the grieving parents or the parents that have lost hope in their child, or the parents that are the addicts that have had their kids taken from them and they see no hope of getting clean and sober. But I'm at a, I'm at a crossroads, no pun intended, <laughs> in the sense that like we have the ability to help fix this. You know what I mean? And I don't deal with the emotions in the trauma, in the traumatic event. Whereas right. you guys are right in the center yep. of the traumatic event as it's occurring. I mean, I don't know that enough credit is given to police officers, EMTs, first fire responders, department. First, first responders, thank you. Yep. First responders, first responders. It, whatever end of the spectrum you're on, right? Whether you're in the hospital or you're there when the shooting happens and, and, and even the victims, some of the victims that maybe are alive after a shooting, right? Trauma is a interesting topic, right? Like, I think what happens is it builds upon, right? As you go on and this trauma starts to affect your behavior. And, We're not laughing at you. Keep uh, going. I'll, okay. I'll cover it so, in a minute. So, but like, <laughs> 
you know, when you, I'll talk about police officers, right? Because it's, it's what I know. And you'll see officers that through their career that they start changing their behaviors. Like I said earlier, you might get negative, you, you end up in divorce mm. or you start drinking and, you know, the negative behaviors. And that's why it's so important that we catch that and that we have those tripwires in place, right? When someone starts going down that process and we've had several processes at Metro over the years, we have different programs. We have one now, like I said, when you start seeing these different behaviors pop up that we get them help to try to save them. That's where my head went when you were saying it. I mean, I understand that like, it's hard though. I mean, looking at like our homicide, I have homicide, right? So I have these homicide detectives and a lot of them, for them, it's not a job. It's like a career almost. It's actually kind of a lifestyle because it's like 24-7 because murders happen and they rotate call out and, and usually it's multiple detectives that go and they live these cases. And that's one crime where you have victims' family, right? They call you every day and you, you, you're managing the mm -hmm. victims. You're managing a case. And then when you get the suspect, you have to manage the prosecution. And a lot of times that the suspect... Um, the attorneys, you know, they, they pull out all the stops, right? Like this is somebody's life and we don't want to convict an innocent person. Like we have to have the right person. So I get both sides, right? There needs to be checks and balances, make sure cops are doing what they're supposed to do. They're not cheating on the case. Right. And that the defendant has his rights protected, but we also have victims and it's such a tough position to be in, right. To see the death and to manage that, that I have yeah. to give kudos to those folks. And, and, all from the that moment, from there's that the moment. dead body. Yeah. Now go. I mean, ish. I, I I was a negotiator, a hostage negotiator, crisis negotiator is what we call it, CNT team, crisis negotiation team for about seven years. And and during that time, you know, we had people that we lost. I was on the phone with one and in person, uh, I had a gentleman shoot himself in the head, like as close as we are. Right. And uh, you never forget that. Right. Like that image will always be in my brain. And, and it's just it's coping, right? It's figuring out ways to cope with that trauma. And, and some people talk about it. I think that's better. Personally, people that hold it in, I think it ends up eating them from the inside out, you know, and the behaviors change, but it's part of the job. You're going to have, it's going to happen no matter who you are in policing. You're going to deal with death. You're going to deal with negativity. You're going to deal with people that hate you and you just have to deal with it. And I feel it's, like it's, it's hard. such an underspoken part of the job. And I don't want to get off on a tangent because we could reiterate that forever. I just believe it's a part of the job that isn't, we don't remind people of it enough. We don't yeah. remind people of like the dark corners of that position. All they really ever get reminded of is when you guys mess up. Yeah, that's that. Like that's what you see. Yeah. But I will say that I've seen in policing, right? Looking back now at peers and people I work with that police officers it's a, it's a profession, right? People say it's gray collar. I've heard, you know, it's, it used to be blue collar. Now it's more gray collar. We get paid more. We're expected to do more, but some people say it's not really white collar, like sure. a business type thing. I like thing. that phrase, gray collar. Right. It's like a gray collar. Like we're kind of, we bounce back and forth, right? right? Cause traditionally people would be like, oh, cops are like plumbers. You fix them when something's broke, they come and fix it. Right. right. But now we're like, we're doing social work, right? Yeah. And we're doing all that we're doing. We're running a business. We have right. almost a billion dollar budget at Metro, right? We're running a business of public safety in this community. So it's, it's, it's changed a little bit and how we're perceived and how we act. And, but at the end of the day, like I was saying, I still see police officers that really can relate to the good ones relate to people. Right. They can go to whatever diner at, you know, 2 a.m. and have a conversation with someone that's working there that's, you know, maybe a single mom or dad trying to put their kid through school and they develop, you know, they they have 
respect for them. You know what I mean? And sure. they appreciate how hard they're working, right? Sure. And, but does it bother you that that's only recognized on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis when your officers are seen in a diner with somebody that they built yeah. a relationship with and not on a public scale? Yeah. I've seen a lot of that through the years. And I think that counterbalances a lot of the bad stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and we yeah. all stand uh, united in, in, you know, Police misconduct, it, it can't happen. It's not tolerable. It's not Sure. I mean, the level you know? of responsibility like, you guys are given. We're, we're all mad right. that one guy has destroyed so much goodwill in policing. Right. Like, it, it, even though I think 95%, 99%, whatever percent people really get it, that, that a person who made that choice. But it's still very frustrating. You know, we work so hard to well, yeah, I do mean, the right thing. And that incident one alone... Can, spark the largest <laughs> social movement yeah. in the history of social yeah. movements, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, and you think that was over the actions of one guy, right? Then there's the argument that that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. It's been built. So maybe it's yeah. not the one yeah. guy, but yeah. it is, it's, it's a, it's the, the minority of the officers that but, are creating that problem. The, right. It's just a, a percentage, right? But uh, uh, I think in any profession you have that. Right? Oh, like absolutely. in any profession, you I can, can have people that are bad people. And sure. You know, the, the secret to that is having ways to root, root them out and get rid of them, right? Like, that's all you can expect. Like, there's always going to be bad doctors. But not every lawyers. There's going to be bad. Is under the microscope as heavily as. Oh, I say that. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day. I said, we're probably the most accountable part of the law enforcement justice system. We wear cameras. We have citizen right. review boards. We have an internal affairs. We, you know, we get sued, right? We have a policy manual that's, well, it was, it's digital, but it was that thick last time it was right. printed, right? Like we have all these levels of scrutiny. But when you look at the other parts of the system, right? Prosecution and defense attorneys, right? Judges, right? They have immunity. Do you think They're that elected that's- or appointed. They, you know- Due to the fact that you're, you're empowered- with your firearms do you believe that it has to do with the idea that you guys have the ability to really truly in a split second change a life whereas yes. every other every other piece already has it built into the laws like you have to do this and there's an argument and there's a jury and there's this and and i understand that they should probably be more scrutinized but i would think that you guys are the most scrutinized because you the have the ability to change something within seconds oh i i, I don't Say that we shouldn't be scrutinized. Right. No, like, I know you're I totally not. get that. I know you're not. Right? I'm just kind of processing accountability. what you're saying. But I, I do think that it's it's if you're going to talk about injustice and you're going to talk about racism in a system, right, and, and fairness and equality. Well, it's not the police. It's fault. not just the police. Sure. Right? Like it's that, not even the police's fault. Right. That's a kind of a short, it's a quick to say, oh, the cops are bad. But really, it is more than that. It's you, a cultural look, thing. It's a cultural thing, and it's a bigger problem. And to just say, oh, this will fix it, it's not going to get the desired result. Right, because think. the other thing is, and correct me if I'm wrong, and then we'll get off topic, but even if the police were racist, let's just say, okay, it is the police forces in America that are racist, None of those cases would win in the courthouse. Correct. None of those cases, right? And I'm not saying what happens right or wrong. This is very objective. But just to say, like, yeah, it would. it's a systemic problem. It's much bigger. It's much broader than just the police force because of everything that happens after you have contact with him and you guys turn custody over to every other form of enforcement or law that it continues to happen and then they end up being charged and incarcerated. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you can't just be held accountable 
you guys can't be the only ones held accountable. I mean, we go to so many calls. On so many calls, do we have contact with people? So many calls from that where we decide where we could make an arrest and maybe don't or handle alternative sure. way. Then from there that we make an arrest and then right. so many it gets submitted to the DA and they decide yes or no to prosecute. Then the ones that get prosecuted get dealt out, right? If a plea bargain's made and then from there a small percentage might go to trial and then from there a percentage may get convicted. Yeah. And from there, they may get probation or from there, they may go to... So there's so many right. layers, right? right. You can't say it's all on you. You can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So I want to I wanna kind of turn back into really the, what our perspective, your perspective as an officer, Metro, with the homeless. I experienced an incident the other day outside my work. And the long and short of it is, is it was an entity... Um, First responder entity, it was not yours. It was not the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department where they responded to a homeless individual. And basically I was just, I was left feeling disappointed. I was almost embarrassed by the way that um, one of the representatives of this agency spoke to this gentleman. And really what it all came down to was one of the representatives recognized the man and had made a couple comments to his partner and said, yeah, he's a frequent flyer. We see him a lot. He lives out here. And by just receiving that information, his partner's attitude and really the way he treated him became less human and more sarcastic and um, dehumanizing the way he spoke to him. It was almost as if he was making the guy feel guilty that they had to even come to intervene and it made me feel really, really, it was disheartening to say the least. So do you guys specifically talk and train? And if so, like, what does that look like for your officers on a daily, monthly, yearly basis of training and keeping them updated? Like in the clinical world, they have to do CEUs. So, and I know you mm -hmm. mentioned it prior about constant training. So um, with the ever evolving climate of like, do you guys address like this is when you're dealing with mental health, when you're dealing with the homeless, when you're dealing with drug addiction, is there anything that is not, I don't know how to say this, I think criminal that you guys are working on, right. like to not treat them community, as criminals. Community yeah. um, aspect. Yeah. There's uh, several different things really. It starts from the day that we, that you apply and we start looking at you, right? Like the number one thing is that we hire the right people. So we've invested a lot of time and effort over the years into our background process and looking at people and their behaviors and a psychological profile and all that, right? So we look and we try to find the best of the best. So when we get them onto the police department, obviously they're going to go through a police academy. Within that academy, it's I guess you call it like these call quasi military. We've changed that quite a bit. It's it's a little bit different. We tried to make it more collegiate, more knowledge based, and not just hut hut yelling and screaming kind of thing, right? So we we've changed that. But we obviously we have to train tactics, right? We need them to stay alive. They have to go home tonight. We promised their loved ones we're going to send them home. So we have to train them in the best tactics that that are out there that we can find. So. Part of the training, though, really is talking to people, is communication, you know, the old term verbal judo, right? right. De-escalation. We spend a lot of time on that now in the academy because we know that that's going to be the base of knowledge. And they're going to get that 
training and probably if you added up the hours, it probably equals almost a week of just that type of behavior, right? Critical incident training and de-escalation and dealing with people with mental health issues and finding alternative resolutions to problems and thinking and, and issues like that. But really it doesn't stop in the academy because they come out and they've got just a basis of knowledge. And we have a really robust field training program and they have to be put in every situation and every situation is graded and documented in a book, essentially, or digitally now, but which, documented. Which would create a level of accountability, it creates, I assume, because if right. you've got a guy that's not passing these and yet you let them to continue on and then they don't continue occurs. on, we extend. Yeah, they'll extend in field training until we know they're ready. Oh, okay. And, and if they are in event and we will take them out and re-put them through the training. Like I mentioned earlier, we have reality-based training. It's actually in a facility and we're building a world-class training center out in the Northeast. It's, we've raised the money for it. We're going to build it. And it's going to create that environment to really train de-escalation and create scenarios. And we'll use the scenarios that are happening now sure. and in the coming months. We don't have to make them up. We just find real, real world examples and we put them through it so we don't make those same mistakes. So it's kind of a philosophy and, a, and it's a culture, right? And changing a culture on an organization can be challenging. It's a big organization. It's like turning a cruise ship sometimes where, you know, you just feel like you're never right. getting there, but you will get there as long as the leadership is engaged, right? It's about setting the tone, holding people accountable and getting there. But I will tell you, sometimes you just have to kind of break the culture too. And mm. that is like a radical of thou shall not, right? Like you will not do this anymore. Like whether it's a chokehold thing or, or whatever it is, right? You set the tone and say, effective immediately, we are not doing this, right? And that is another way. But there's always resistance. Even if you're using the slow model of culture change, you know, or you're just kind of breaking something and making a hard and fast rule that will change that culture, it, it, there's still people that resist it, right? So you have to identify those and set those processes up to find the, the ones that aren't following the rules. And that... It's a sergeant's job, a lieutenant, a captain, like there's a whole process in that mm. where we evaluate them constantly. And then layer into that, they have to have, uh, it was 24, I think now we've dropped it a little bit, but training, in-service training every year, according to police officer standards and training our post, which certifies a police officer. So they have to have certain amount of training. It has to include defensive tactics of which the appropriate response to force is covered, right? Handcuffing people if they want to fight, what you can use. We have a policy manual, like I said, it's continually under right. It has uh, undergone so many, you know, it used to be a wheel, then it's a ladder, like of force options. If I look at it like this, if you do this, what can I do? Right? Like it kind of sets it out exactly what the officers can do. And then we like train a flow them. Chart. <laughs> Right. It's like a flow chart. I'll show it to you. I have yeah, it. Yeah, right? Okay. Like it literally shows whether the person is obstructive, are they assaultive, right? Or are they life-threatening where they're trying to kill right. you or somebody else, right? So it lays out what, whether you can tase them or not and then what level, you know, and, and what are your options? Because we have to give our cops options, right? Like they have to have something other than the gun, you know, or fists, you know, so, um, we give them the tools, they put them on their belt, we train them exhaustively, and then every year we retrain them. We do reality-based training, we do roll call training, which is on the computer. Um, we do mandatory training. Whenever an issue comes up, we'll say effective immediately, this is 
y'all need to take this class right online and every sergeant will sit with their squad and go over it and and the use of force you know handcuffing procedures all that type of thing continuously trained it's 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 a constant learning environment right and to promote you have to have college so we have different levels of yeah education right so you have to have a bachelor's degree to be a captain so like we have these so not only do we have the internal training now we have educational requirements because well, we incentives, know incentives really incentives yeah sure. well to promote you have to yeah it's... so you have to go to college essentially and that generally will make you a better thinker a better speaker yeah. a better writer a better you know communicator i didn't know that i thought that you so, could progress through the entire force with a high school diploma um you can if you stay a police officer right just to if well you stay i, I get that you can officer. stay in the force but yeah. you can't you grow can't. in the force no Oof. so it, it I mean, there's a lot of training, right? There's a lot that goes into it. And that's why we spend an exorbitant amount of time training our folks. So um, if we can save them, we do. But if we can't, they have to go and we fire them. Again, my time in internal affairs, I got rid of, I think it was like 33 people, right? So like we we go through them, right? Because we're, we're a huge organization, right? And oh, yeah. we have people and people have problems, right? We hire from the human race. They're going to make mistakes and... You know, we give them an opportunity to correct their mistakes. We have a whole disciplinary process and, and it's effective. We fire a lot of our folks and, and they go elsewhere, maybe not even in law enforcement, right? But right. They're, they leave our organization. I almost feel a, like being fired from being a cop would almost be like a felony. It would almost be impossible to get a job as a cop somewhere else. That's, that's where my head yeah, takes me. Like, yeah, you know and there's mean? a lot like, of talk about that, you know, creating a national database and, and whatnot. And I think most of us would support that it's reasonable right we don't want i don't want to hire somebody else's problem that's what i'm thinking right, right? like so i would lateral, think the same like, thing we yeah. don't do laterals anymore because like why would you want to go from you know if you're a police officer somewhere for 15 years why all of a sudden are you going to quit and come here i spoke to a like, director at ndoc who was talking about that databases yeah. and yeah. um even mental health databases for the law enforcement which i thought at first when i started hearing about it i was like what and then as i as he kind of explained he didn't want it to be pulled from you know, private mental health providers what he wanted is any contact that we've ever had with them in the united states whether it be on a prison level, a jail level, or anything that they've been able to do and gather information about this guy should be shared unilaterally across the board on in the hub mm -hmm. so that the next time an officer pulls over a guy and runs his name, they know, hey, when he was in NDOC, he was diagnosed schizophrenic. Yeah. Right? And I yeah. thought, ugh, good to how know. powerful yeah, would that be? Know. How powerful would that be? Because that's the other thing that you guys are handy. You don't know. You're not mental health. You're not no. licensed clinical social workers there to go, oh, hey, I see that guy right there. He's schizophrenic. We need to do, you know what I mean? Like you, sometimes. I think most of our folks, I mean, quite honestly, would know the difference. I believe Whether it. someone's bipolar, schizophrenic. Or just paranoid, on meth. Yeah, or just on meth, right? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. traditionally yeah. we wouldn't know. We would right. say, well, he was acting, his behavior or sure. behavior was off. So we deal with the behavior, not the right. condition, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's just overarching. How do we get rid of judgment? How do we get rid of these divisions, I guess, in our society and the way that we respond to them? Like, you know, have, knowing that somebody is, is a medical frequent flyer, now we've automatically made a judgment that they're not sick. Right. Like his example. I, I think, okay, that's, that's deep. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I, I think uh, in 30 seconds. A, th yeah, yeah. There's a lot to that. So how do I answer that quickly? <laughs> Process matters and policy, like I said before, and training, right? For for policing. We need to ensure we have the checks and balances for our folks when it comes to these critical issues in policing, whether it's use of force, uh, arrest procedures, how we deal with mental health issues, all these societal issues, we have to have the training and the policy and the checks and balances. I think it's important that there's oversight. I think it's important that communities participate in their police departments. You have to have community buy-in and it can't just be ex-cops, right? Members, it has to be your, your, maybe your worst enemies, right? Like your biggest critics, like you need that to be successful and it's uncomfortable and we don't like it, but we need it, right? It's just uncomfortable for, for officers. So I think some of our best successes are when we meet with people that maybe would be perceived as our enemy or people that are anti-law enforcement, you know, that just want to see us not here and we find that we're all human and that we all are basically you know people on this earth and we have commonalities and we build on those commonalities versus kind of just recognizing or reinforcing our differences because I've never met you before you've never met me before but theoretically I could have been that guy outside your house and I could have had a bad day and I could have been like, holy crap, this person just walked up behind me and scared me. Get the F back in your house. Right. And you would have walked away and thought that guy is such a, right. right. And then we meet each other under this circumstance and you go, okay, well maybe he's not that much of that guy. Right. And that's why it's so important that we have relationships, right. And not just the contacts in the law enforcement capacity. Who is that invite extended to? I would not be interested in going because I'm not in depth. I don't I don't understand your policy and how you write it and how the continuity of yeah. it is even created or exists. But what I so I think of stuff like I hate to say this example, but it's the only one that's coming to mind, like hip hop artists that were in the criminal mm -hmm. lifestyle that have since come out and they make a bunch of money, whatever. But then they turn back around and they try to work with local law enforcement because they understand their neighborhoods. They yeah. understand the internal gang wars. They Right? Who are those conversations invited? Like who's invited to those conversations to help you understand? Because I can tell you, even people with years of recovery or that used to live a lifestyle that have no, no longer live a lifestyle, that stigma of getting over police officers is one of the hardest yeah. to overcome. I remember being stopped as a kid by the police and in Philadelphia, they weren't always friendly. Sure. Okay. So yeah. I've, I've had it on both sides, you know, like I've seen it, felt it, been on the other receiving end of, you know, that type of behavior, you know, and it is definitely not fun, but I will say we've come a long way. And I think that when we look at Metro as an organization, um, we have the uh, Metro's Multicultural Advisory Committee which are members of the community, representative from ACLU and a variety of diverse groups, right? Okay. Whatever type of people you could think of we have. Like we, we open it to everybody, right? Any community, we want your input. And that's so important to us. And, and then we're able to present at least at that level, maybe to 20 or 30 people, why we do what we do and garner some support. And the relationships that are made at the area command level from the captains and the community and the people, the cops in that area command, which we have 10, and the people in that community, 
when something bad happens, we are transparent. We, we need to bring them in and show them what happened and say, yeah, maybe something, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe it's something we need to fix. And we work together on fixing it where they feel they have some say. Because people get mad when something's happening to them and they have no say and right. they just feel angry. But when we say, hey, something happened, it was wrong, help us fix it. I think it helps people feel better about it, right? And they go, okay, well, at least they're letting us help fix it. And I feel like listen they feel them, better you know? about it when it when they see the change. I can tell you like, yeah, okay, thank you for inviting me to the conversation. This is how I feel. But if nothing changes, then, then I don't care that I was invited. Yeah, right? no, I And agree. I believe that what you guys have been able to do is to show that you're hearing and making moves right on those conversations. When you look at, you know, duty to intervene, uh, the looking at force levels, we were one of the first to get body cameras and putting them on our patrol officers and, and turning them over. And uh, yeah. And then, uh, the transparency of doing a, a, a release the night of the shooting. And then three days later having a press conference where we show all the body cam video. There's some places in this country that don't eat the cities don't even allow that to be released. I just read that. And right. I remember thinking so, that's what got me to look it up for Metro. I go, I wonder what their policy on it. And when I read that you had, you guys give it out the night of, I thought, well, there's not much time to tamper with that. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Like you basically, here you go. Like, Look, I can barely get my phone to work. I don't know how people Fair see enough. me tamper with a body cam video. Uh, you know, Fair there's enough. so many levels of people like you couldn't do that yeah. without being, you know, yeah. it being completely obvious. And it, at the end of the day, though, right, we're not perfect. We still need, there's going to be ways that are uncomfortable for us to improve and we're going to have to do that. And, you know, the when you look at the issues that people are talking about around the country, we're there on almost all of it. That's cool. So... Uh, do you, you guys know. have any closing questions, comments? Yeah, I do. I have a pretty serious one, actually. Can <laughs> I, find that down I go on a ride-along? <laughs> yes. Dope. That's all. <laughs> the question, though, really is, will you come on a ride-along? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. So, so I have so many people that say that, and then they, well, you know. I, my dad My dad was a, the division director of juvenile services in Washoe County for years. He okay. just retired. Uh, a couple years ago, but I always told him I wanted to go on a ride along and I never was able to, to well, do so. We do ride alongs when it's a benefit for the agency, right? Like if, if it's, we don't just uh, do it. Be so, of no benefit. So. We don't do it so someone can go have fun, you know, they right. can, but if, if we can bring a community member out that has some impact, right. And that will come out and they can see what we do and, you know, and, and say, wow, I never realized like these folks make these decisions and yeah, this, it's crazy. And people that come on ride alongs, they, they never leave the same, right? They always walk away with a different perspective, Well, that's good or bad. I don't know. Right. We could argue that, but what scares me with is a the different perspective. Shift. <laughs> it's what? The 12 hour shift. I work 12 hours and then you want me to turn around yeah. and do what? We, <laughs> we do tens. Our, our guys are, our it's cops 10 are hour tens. ride along. Yeah, yeah, 10, 10 hours. It's not even but you can leave work. early if you get tired. We yeah, won't yeah. make you stay. Um, if you can't hang for 10 that. hours, he gave you permission and then questions your manhood and just give you those slides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, but no, certainly if, 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 especially for your organization. And this is what I want to talk to you about too. We have a Lieutenant Tim Hatchett that, um, really manages the mental health and addiction and that whole program. I am going to introduce you to him, please. And then you guys can work together on please. this as another provider, you know, shine a light and Metro can form that partnership. That would be amazing. So I, 
I was sitting here thinking this whole time. You mentioned Hot Team earlier, so I, I look at my phone real quick. I look up the website, and I know this is no indication of what the, they do as a whole, but immediately I see 10 guys in, in the cert gear. Uh, you know what I mean? And, the and most scary on the, on the uniform. Website? Yeah. I'll have to take a look. It and should then, be under the Hot Team. That doesn't Then I sense. Then I, my mind starts going to... I'm only going to share my experience. There's no indication of you. I like what you Certainly. said. You know what I mean? I know we're all growing towards something. We don't, none of us know the answer yet. We're all trying to work through it. And I think what, what I think is my time of being homeless in five years, I never had one positive interaction with a police officer. I own my part. Believe me, I'm not, you know, I wasn't some innocent yeah. guy walking around at all times, but I had a lot of bad experiences with police officers on the ground level. You know what I mean? A lot of bad ones. I mean, and I just think, now in recovery, I've had a lot of positive experiences, not necessarily on the same level, but you know, obviously I'm living a different way of life. I have a lot of good examples of officers in my life right now trying to do good things. So I'm hopeful that there that that bridge can be gapped because, like he said, there's a lot of not resentment. It's just you can't put away what you've seen. You know what I mean? Like we, yeah. we talk a lot about you can't argue with what you see. And yeah. what I've seen is not something that I allow to hold me back, but I'm aware of it. You know what I mean? Of what I've seen. And I'm hopeful that what you're talking about does continue to grow and change because your police force has clearly changed in the last 10 years, right? I think nobody can argue with that. So I'm hopeful that it will also change in that area because it's something that's very personal to me based on my own experience, you know? And Never one time in my entire time I was out there was I ever offered help. You know, I mean, that's not anybody's resp I get that. There's many pieces that we've talked about that's not just the officers. I understand that. And, and I think also that what we said about police officers only being talked about when something bad happens, I think it's almost a, a, a what do you call that, like a, a validation because people have become so used to every time something goes wrong, calling an officer, right? That they've been there for so long. They've done... They've always done the dirty work for so long. For, we're just mm -hmm. used to it. We're just, it's ingrained in our psyche from the time I'm born. Call the cops. Call if the cops. You, you wake up and look outside and say there's a homeless person in your backyard, you're going to call the police. For sure. You know, I don't know that I would, but I understand the Yeah, mentality. but I mean, that, the average <laughs> yeah. person, that's what I would give him my number and ask him if yeah. he needs yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. to yeah. get him help. Yeah. 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 But the average person is like, who are they going to call? They don't yeah, know who no, to call. Yeah, no, fair. No, They're that's call fair. The we're the minority, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, so we have to set up our systems to where the appropriate resources get sent out there, not the cop that's going to treat you poorly. Well, and I, I love the example you give of turning the ship because I believe that, you know, that I visualize what that means. It's so slow oh. to, you know, just if, if you're going to change direction in general. Um, but I can relate. I mean, I've had plenty of negative experiences. I've been doing what I've been doing a little bit longer. And I've had, really, it was almost like I didn't have a choice to change my perspective. They put me in the courthouse. They put me at Freedom House. Um, I start to interact with parole, officer, parole officers, probation officers, the area command, the people that are patrolling Freedom House. I go in, I see the judges, I see the DAs, I see the POs operate. You know, even the um, public, or the, uh, the defense, not, I'm sorry, the district attorney representatives for specialty courts behind the scenes are like, how do we help him? How do we keep him out of jail? And then we go into the courthouse and I watch him completely turn into the DA where they're fighting to put him mm -hmm. in jail, even though we all know what's about to happen. Like, but they put on this show, you know what I mean? And, um, so I, I've gotten re right. 
the way I see it. And it's only been through blessing because I think had I not had that perspective, I wouldn't have had a perspective shift. I was put in a very unique opportunity to get to see the complete opposite side of what it is that we've been through. And I don't know, I think I asked you this before and you weren't familiar with it, but are you familiar with LEAD? Well, now it's called Lima and it's law enforcement. Yeah, mental health. Intervention, mental health. health and addiction. Yep. Yeah, we're we're part of that. And that's part of what Tim Hatchett, I'm going to introduce you to. And that's how we're running with the the seven UNLV folks. Yeah, it's all part of that. It's through Lima. Okay, so um, I have had interaction with them. And I I actually, one of the officers is going to come and sit with us in the future. Yeah, because he told me, I asked uh, Lieutenant Hatchett about, if he heard of your, and he goes, yeah, I think we just made some contact with them. So that yeah. must have been what Very he was talking cool. about. Yeah. I have a question that's completely off topic, but I'm curious. I have a hard time wrapping my head around the process that we elect judges. I have a hard time with that because the community isn't very well versed in what that lawyer is doing mm-hmm. his whole career or that, you know, district attorney has done their whole career. And, and we vote this person in office that is a bipartisan, like, you know, I mean, I think, how do we make an informed decision? How do you feel about the sheriff being an elected position? Is it along the same lines or? No, I think, well, there's a a couple of differences. Uh, To be the sheriff here in Clark County, you have to have been in law enforcement for a certain time. And I think it's within a, we're in a, 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 a population jurisdiction, I think it's 300,000. I think I'm, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but so you have to have some experience in law enforcement and credible policing. I do think that the one benefit that it has is that you are an independent authority over the policing and you receive your funding from the different jurisdictions, but it also allows you the autonomy to not have to change every time, say, a mayor comes in or a city council comes in, depending on the form of government in that jurisdiction, right? They can just get rid of the police chief every two years or every year. Mm. And you see that in a lot of organizations. The chiefs just don't last. And so when you get a chief in there and he's making the changes or she's making the changes and you're all of a sudden the mayor comes in and says, I don't like this person. I want this person to come in and be the chief. They may have a little different philosophy and it could change everything. And it's like, trying to, like we said, trying to move the ship. Like right. if you keep stopping it and rechanging the direction, it just, you never really get anywhere. So it, it helps empower continuity. It does. Okay. It, yeah. Fair and it, it, it's, it's every four years. So if the public doesn't like what the sheriff's doing, they can vote them out. Right? right. Just like judges. But the sheriff here is a little bit different. It's not, I mean, it's not, um, we're, we're, uh, probably, let's see, I think we're two and a half years away from, from the election. And, you know, depending on what's going on in the community, you never know, right? Like they choose right. to run again or somebody else chooses to run. So it's not like set in stone. And most of them don't stay more than one or two terms. So it's not like a judge position that may be a judge for life. Right. So any closing remarks? We good? Good? No, I appreciate the opportunity. To no, I appreciate you coming out. So one of, yeah, one so of our great. last closing things that we like to ask, um, personal to you or your cause or whatever, if 
there is a nonprofit or some type of agency that you would like to put on the radar that we'll include in the link in the bio. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll include the link in the bio. Okay. So that we're able to. Um, we'll also include any kind of information we can gather so they can read up on it and investigate like that organization. Is there anything okay. close to your heart, true blue to you that you would like to be featured um, in the bio when the, we release the, the episode? I, I will just tell you this. The one, um, I guess, organization or nonprofit is Injured Police Officers Fund. To me, uh, what happened to Shane McAlenis when he got shot, um, you know, that's an organization that really does provide help to injured cops and their families. Okay. So that would be one. I'll get you the information. Perfect. Cool. So it's legitimate. You know, it's not one of these telemarketers that calls you on the phone sure. that says that, you know, we don't do that. Okay. So this one is legitimate. This is the real one. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right, so, cool. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah. I really appreciate you and thank you for yeah, thank your you. time. And yeah. I thank it. you guys too. It's been, yeah. been fun chatting. You can go onto our website. There is also a first Tuesday meeting. Uh, we're doing them virtually now. We were doing them at the area commands, but show up to one of those and we'll get you going from there. They happen every month. We call it first Tuesday because as you can guess, it's the first Tuesday of the month <laughs> and it's at the area commands and they start, I think it's six or seven o'clock. We've changed them over, over the time, but I think we're doing them virtually now through Zoom. But some of the area commands have upwards of 150 to 200 people show up and you get a chance to talk to your captain of your area and you can ask them, hey, why did the cop tell me to go the F inside? You can ask them any question you want. We have community-oriented police officers there. If you've got graffiti, whatever it is, you tell us, we can handle it. You get to meet cops from that station that can help you and, and develop that relationship. Very That's cool. the best way. And, and you know, if you're interested in serving on a border committee, we those are public notices we push out and post, and there's always that option. Very cool. Yeah. All right. We love Thank the, you. the community input. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Really. Uh, next week, we have a very special guest, a dear friend of mine, Miss Denise Parker, who is the specialty courts administrator over all of 8th District. Please come and join us on Tuesday, where we will unpack the drug court system and everything that they're doing to help intervene with mental health, drug addiction, and substance use. And now it's time for the fact check with me, Claire White. Yeah, Claire, what do you what'd you bring for us? What kind of what kind of facts do we have? Oh, by the way, Paul and Angelo both are not here. This is going to be a very balanced and fair fact check. <laughs> I think just to get us started, I looked up just some sort of working definitions of what it means to defund the police because we've been hearing it a lot this year. I feel like all of a sudden in 2020, for obvious reasons, there's clearly been some use of force incidences and some officer-involved shootings that clearly have triggered it for, you know, clear reasons. But the defund the police movement has existed. It really started to gain traction in 2014 after Ferguson. And even before that, there were people who were sort of pushing this idea of defund the police. And there are a lot of people now that are kind of concerned that the fact that they picked this phrase defund the police to be the logo and the motto of their movement is limiting it as far as what it can accomplish because everyone, you know, I don't think I need to ask, like when you hear the term defund the police, it 
sounds like people want to completely get rid of, dismantle, stop funding the police. That's what defund means. It's definitely what I thought when I first heard it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm not going to diminish the more radical part of the movement. There are people who straight up believe that our police system is not something that can be reformed and does need to be dismantled. But that is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the movement. Most people, I think, would acknowledge that we obviously need someone to investigate violent crimes. And the police is usually the system that's used to investigate violent crimes anywhere in the world. But the real problem is the social services that they provide and the way that police budgets are often so much larger than any other community social services. So in most major cities, the police have a larger budget than the schools, than social workers, than uh, housing resources in the community. I found a figure, I couldn't find a figure specifically for Las Vegas or Nevada, but in New York, for instance, the New York City Police Department's budget is larger than the health department, homeless services, youth and community development, and workforce development combined. Because Nevada and Las Vegas tend to be a little more decentralized, it's a little harder to get that because we do have a lot of partnerships that like you'd have to cobble together all of those partner budgets to really get at the whole amount of money that gets pushed out into the community. But the idea of defunding the police is taking away the health and human services that police were never meant to be providing, but are now providing. And a lot of times it really is because a budget gets cut for homeless services, a budget gets cut for mental health services, a budget gets cut for youth services. And someone says, well, the police will handle all of that. But police, even the best trained police are not trained to handle the whole host of human suffering. Those are major issues too. That's not like you're, you're dropping, you know, parking tickets on them. You know what I mean? You're talking about mental health, drug addiction, homeless, like those are major, major topics. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's not a little handoff. That's not a little, I mean, those are major projects that they're not qualified, not educated or trained enough to handle for sure. Exactly. And I think, I don't think the people in this room, and I'm sure many of our listeners don't fall into this, but for many Americans, when we think of mental health issues and mental health reform, when we think of drug addiction, when we think of some of these social and community challenges, we're thinking of them affecting a very specific segment of the population. But that's just not true. We have mental health challenges across the economic spectrum, across the racial spectrum. We have drug addiction problems across the economic spectrum, across the racial spectrum. Yes, there are communities that are more affected, but this isn't something... The wealthiest person doesn't want their family member with mental health to have a aggressive police officer be the first person who helps them any more than a homeless person wants their family member to have the police be the first person that's there to help them. And a lot of it does go just to the nature of policing. Policing traditionally was to assist with violent crimes. But today, uh, and this is essentially nationwide, about 90% of calls handled by metropolitan police departments are nonviolent in nature. They're getting calls about things that are community issues, not specifically crime related. 
It's got to be hard to be a police officer. And one minute you're answering a domestic violence, the next minute it's a you know homeless guy destroying some property, then it's you know a dumpster's on fire, then it's backup. Then you know I mean there's got to be a lot of stress involved with their job. And now imagine all the different areas that they're responsible for. So I can see I can see where there's loopholes. You know where they're not loopholes. Where there's areas that are overstrained for sure. You know what I mean? Just yeah. And Chris Darcy says early on in the episode that most police chiefs, most sheriffs would probably agree with him that their police officers shouldn't be the people handling this. And I think he's right without polling all of those individuals, knowing what I know about police and knowing what I've researched about police, you know, they know that there are some things that they're the best at. They they have certain de-escalation tactics. They have certain things in their arsenal that the average person is not trained or equipped with. But what you mentioned right there is a real challenge. So yeah, you're going from one incredibly violent thing to one sort of innocuous thing to a call that you're not really sure what you're walking into to a call that you assume is violent and then you go and it's actually been misrepresented. You are constantly having to make that switch. And that's a lot to ask even the most educated, compassionate person. And that I think is a good segue into training and what is happening as far as training with Metro right now. Metro police training, just because it came up, but Chris Darcy didn't go into great depth about it. And I think it's important for us to understand exactly what the police academy looks like for our Metro officers in Vegas. So right now it's structured as 27 weeks of instruction before they then go into their field training and evaluation, which is another like 20 weeks. But in those 27 weeks, I think it's important for us to understand. So that's seven months, less than seven months, and they are covering criminal constitutional Constitutional and civil law, firearms training, criminal investigations, report writing, patrol procedures, traffic enforcement, police administration, police professionalism and ethics, human relations and diversity, vehicle operations, defensive tactics, and going through their physical conditioning. That is a lot. And I think the reason why it's important to lay it all out there and enumerate it is, I don't know about you, but even our brightest, most educated, most empathetic police officers, 27 weeks to learn all of those things that I just said is a lot. And our corrections officers have even less in class instruction. They have about 18 to 20 weeks of training. And again, they are dealing with the same level of they are having to learn all of these legal concepts, all of these professionalism, all of these ethics, officer safety, as well as the human relations issue and the human services component. And so I think it is, it's something that Chris Darcy talks about the fact that there is annual in-service training, that they do retraining whenever there is a policy change. But I think that if we want to hold our officers accountable, we have to keep in mind that we're talking about people who we are currently as a county, as a city, are expecting these officers to be experts in 27 weeks. What's the average time between the 27 weeks and when they're on the street? So after their 27 weeks of instruction, they have 19 weeks of field training and evaluation. With most of their tests, they have an option to retest if they do not pass their evaluation. So there is definitely a variation as far as whether people are completing in exactly 19 calendar weeks or taking longer after that. 
But, you know, essentially after those 27 weeks of instruction, those seven months, you're looking at another five months or so. So you're looking at if you are an officer who is in peak physical condition, peak mental condition, peak emotional condition, passing all of your tests, studying, able to devote all your time to it. You're looking at a, a year. I mean, it, it's it's not a, not a year, not a full year. It's what that winds up being about 47 weeks, so a little less than a year. You're looking at a good amount of time that they are being trained. But I mean, compare that to a social worker who has four years of undergrad and then within a few years of starting at the state is probably already working on their master's. It's very different. And I know that many of our Metro officers have associates or bachelor's degrees. This is not to imply that I think that our officers are untrained. My point is that we need to consider how much we're expecting them to learn and accomplish in a very, very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to school for four years for television and film. So <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, we expect our teachers to have four years. We expect our nurses to have four years or more. Police officers have many skills and many things that they bring to the table that are maybe different than some of those fields, but it's a, it's, it's a lot. And I think that's exactly the point. You know, we have officers that you have police officers that are teaching in schools with DARE. You have police officers that are community liaisons when you're doing national night out. You have police officers that are expecting to have the same professionalism and personal skills that a social worker or a psychologist has when they're out working with vulnerable populations. That is so much to put on people that we say, you can come right on into the academy and we'll give you less than a year of training and you're good to go. And then ongoing training, do you have the information for that? So I wasn't able to get an exact number. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of their in-service training does focus on new procedures and procedural changes. Metro is very responsive. They are constantly making changes. And in fact, one of the things we're not going to cover in the fact check is any more detail really on their use of force policies and their use of force continuum. And the reason for that is because they are so responsive that they change them pretty regularly. And a lot of the continual in-service training that they do is, from what I could research and, and what I know from speaking to police officers, is focused on sort of that retraining element, making sure that everyone is up to date on what's new every quarter, every day, every year. But for anyone who is interested, and I would encourage every single person to take the initiative to do this, Metro is very transparent. We are very lucky in Las Vegas that we do have a transparent organization organization that you can go on their website and get information about their use of force continuum, about their policies, their numerous reports from when they went through their huge reform period in 2012 and 2013. You can pull off those reports um, when they worked with the U.S. Department of Justice. And, you know, if this is something that you're interested in, and once you have equipped yourself with some of that knowledge, we would definitely recommend that you check out one of the first Tuesdays. First Tuesdays is a great opportunity because you can go to your area command 6 to 8 p.m. and find out what's going on. And I think that's the way that we become more informed. And it's really easy in Las Vegas. We are a transient community. And I don't just mean the homeless population. I mean, in general, we are a transient community and we are 
over 2 million. And if you are new to the city, I think you sort of feel like, oh, whatever, I'm, I'm new. What am I going to do? What role do I play? And if you are a long time Las Vegas local or native, I think sometimes you almost have that perspective of like, oh, well, the city's grown so big. Like how much of a voice do I have anymore? But this is the kind of stuff that you can do. And (laughs) I think that probably is a a good segue just into another thing that got touched on in this episode, which is the fact that Nevada is a state that elects our judges. And it is probably forefront of your mind that you had like 500 judges. It's so complicated. (laughs) I'm sitting here texting Claire. Just tell me what judges to vote for. Like, I have no idea. And I feel like I'm a pretty informed voter, but it's so hard. And what's crazy is I am so flattered you're not the only person who asked me for judge voting advice. (laughs) But the, the crazy thing is... I'm also not a legal professional. I've made that very clear, I think, on this podcast (laughs) by the way I pronounce certain legal terms and things like that. There There are some judges that I personally know through my work that I do in the community and things like that. There are other people that I just have some sense of their record and I feel comfortable with. There are others that I'm like, oh God, so-and-so asked me about district such and such. Now I got to text my law professor friend or I got to text my lawyer friend or my history professor because truly, unless you are in the court system or you are a lawyer, it is impossible to wrap your head around. I'm not exaggerating. We had like, what, 60, 60 something this year? Yeah, two pages Mm double-sided just of George's, George's, judges. (laughs) (laughs) So fun history nerd deep dive. And by deep dive, I mean, this is a thing I knew off the top of my head. (laughs) The idea of voting in judges as opposed to appointing them is older than our state of Nevada. It actually starts in like the 1820s. In the 1820s and 30s, there is what is considered by many historians and specifically like political and social historians, sort of this democratic revolution. It's centered around people like Andrew Jackson, who really believe that even in America, 30 or 40 years after we became a country, that we were already too ruled by the elites. And regardless of what side of the political spectrum you fall on right now, presently, I bet you have a little bit of that in you because as all Americans have this sort of idea of like, I don't want someone who went to Harvard and who's been rich from birth to tell me what to do. Like that's a very American perspective. And so in the 1820s and 30s, a number of states start sort of pushing for more elected positions that are elected by more parts of the population. And what I mean by that is that early in our democracy, we still have states where if you're not a landowner, you can vote for some things, but you can't vote for everything. Obviously, if you're a woman, you're not voting in 1820s and 30s. Obviously, if you are an African-American, even if you are in a free state, you're not voting for anything. Mm -hmm. By 1860, there is a wave uh, right on the eve of the Constitution. We've sort of gone through this period of about 40 years where people are starting to people states are starting to change their constitutions. And that is sort of the beginning of the end of appointed judges in the in the United States. So the argument is that an elected judge is 
a form of necessary checks and balances to make sure that the political parties are not sort of seeping in and corrupting our judiciaries. And the judicial branch, which is, I think, hard to believe right now based on the last like six or seven Supreme Court nominees, but there was a time when the American Constitution operated under this assumption that all judicial branches at the federal level, at the state level, were completely nonpartisan. And that if you were appointing judges, that they were at the whim of who's ever in political power in that state, in that presidency, in that Senate, in that local city, whatever. So we are not the only state that votes in our judges. And in fact, the majority of U.S. states vote for at least some of their judges. There are 18 states that the majority of their judges are elected through partisan elections. So you actually have a political party. Nevada is a state where we have nonpartisan elections, which is good in the fact that it keeps our judiciary nonpartisan, bad in the fact that it gives people even less of a sense of who they're voting for, um, harder to gauge who you might align with better. But 21 states have these nonpartisan judicial elections. That doesn't mean that they vote for every single judge. But here in Nevada, we're pretty much voting for every single judge from the Supreme Court on down. And there are only seven states that don't have any judicial elections. So Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Virginia are the only states that do not elect, only appoint their judges. And I think it's something that we need to keep in mind that the goal of electing judges is to give people more power because I think most people see those judges and see it as a chore. <laughs> I mean, I think, honestly, I think everyone does. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's overwhelming. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to call anyone out, but I know lawyers who find it tedious to have to vote for every judge. Mm -hmm. And in Nevada, we have a system that I think makes it incredibly challenging because we have, especially here, but also in Washoe County and in, in Reno, we have everything segmented into districts, but you don't necessarily vote just for your district. You're voting for all 32 districts, even though they may not in any situation actually try cases that affect you in terms of where you live, where you work, because they're in a different district within the county. And a lot of states don't go that far. A lot of states do have it segmented out. So you're voting for a smaller percentage of the judges. Mm. It's not great. <laughs> it's, it's so difficult. Also, it's so hard to research. It is. And I think, you know, there are ways to get around that. The State Bar Association does try to compile records. There's always ballot assistance that the Las Vegas Sun puts out, that the RJ puts out, you know, depending on your political leaning. There's definitely resources out there, but so many times you're cobbling together, like this is what progressive voters for Nevada say I should do. And this is what the Nevada current says that I should do. And this is what the sun says I should do. And right. this is what I mean, Nevada independence says I should do. That's what, you, that's what I did was mm -hmm. I looked at the recommendations. I did as much research as I could and I just kind of went with my gut. 
Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I think that I am the type of person that will make informed decisions. And there were several judges that I just left blank. Yeah. Because it was like, I can't knowingly vote for one or the other because I don't know who's better. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so difficult. Yeah. One person who asked me for ballot help, they said, you know what? I really don't want you to tell me everyone to vote for. I'm just going to leave most of them blank. But please tell me if it's someone who you know who has had misconduct issues over the last, you know, few years or ever. Mm. And please tell me if it's someone who you definitively know should not is, be. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I can definitely do that. I can definitely tell you who I think is a no brainer that you cannot vote for this person with the values that you hold. But I respect that if you feel like you can't make an informed decision and you don't have the time to do that research, ballot roll off, empty down ballot, whatever you want to call it is real. And it's real because Nevada voters are expected to vote for 60 judges or at least Clark County. I know it is a little less in the rural districts, but even in our rural counties, I mean, they're still voting for judges every single year. Nevada, <laughs> I tell you. <ya. laughs> So this is a quick one, but just just for us to have it in our fact check, Paul and, and Chris talk at length about the differences between legalizing marijuana and uh, sort of the end of prohibition and how little legalizing marijuana has affected the black market relative to how prohibition affected the black market. So I would just say, and they definitely talk about this, they, they definitely sum it up pretty well, but just so we have maybe that, that hard number, a lot of it comes down to the money. So when we're looking at prohibition, we're looking at as soon as prohibition is over, the legal alcohol, the taxes essentially replace the cost of, you know, what, what it was costing during prohibition to buy illegal liquor. Like the cost difference in most places is kind of negligible from, from before prohibition ends to after prohibition ends. And that is just not the case with marijuana. Marijuana is being so heavily taxed across both the United States where it's recreationally legal, but also in Canada, it's been so heavily taxed that the black market is still able to compete. So for instance, once you include the excise taxes and the sales taxes and everything here in Nevada, you're looking at a, a final tax rate on your recreational marijuana of about 33%. So you are still able to get street level marijuana at a much lower rate. So the cannabis industry, while it has definitely changed the structure of marijuana use in our community, and in our state, it's not addressing the cost disparity. And there's legitimate reason to tax marijuana as highly as we do. There are definitely some legal, some legal things that are built into that and some tax, some tax needs that sort of helped legalize it, the, some things that sort of tipped the scales towards legalization. But until it is harder for black market individuals to uh, grow and then sell marijuana, it's never going to change the black market in the States. And same in Canada. And in fact, a number of articles that I looked at related to legalizing recreational cannabis was pointing out that in fact, growers now in the United States 
are taking advantage of the fact that Canada is not growing enough to meet the demand. And so that's an additional black market. That's actually growth for American growers in certainly in in the the Northwestern states that are right across a border that is not very well policed by international law enforcement on either side. Mm -hmm. A a relatively open border there, you know, we're we're not quite as concerned about about the northwestern border as we are the southern border or even frankly the northeastern border has much more just because there's more people there and there's more commerce that's going up and down so it's far more patrolled another quick thing uh just again to give some some numbers some statistics to something that was being discussed there was mention of relapse and and how frequent uh, or recurrent relapse is, it is hard to get numbers as far as like, does the average addict relapse twice in the first year in recovery or eight times in the first year in recovery or eight times over the first 10 years? It's hard to get specific numbers. But what isn't hard to get is sort of overall percentages that are accepted by the industry. So I got a couple of figures that are slightly different, but I think are within that sort of margin of error that helps us understand it a little better. So one recovery treatment center reported that uh, less than 20% of patients who are in treatment for alcoholism remain alcohol-free for an entire year. And that for people who remain sober for two years, that 60% of them are able to remain alcohol-free after they've reached that two-year mark. But that still means that there's 40% of addicts in recovery for alcoholism who are still in risk and actually do relapse even after two years. The longer you're in recovery, the less statistically likely relapse is. But the National Institute on Drug Abuse, when we're looking at drug addiction as opposed to alcoholism, says that relapsing is something that affects roughly 40 to 60% of all people who go through all treatment for substance abuse, specifically targeted at drug abuse, and that 60% of people who are recovering from drug addiction will deal with relapse, so looking specifically at drug addiction. What's interesting, and this does take a little bit of a logical leap, only because even if you know and understand that addiction is a disease and is a disorder, I think it's still hard for us to wrap our minds around this. But I read this and thought it was interesting, specifically because I have asthma and I've had asthma for years. The rate of relapse for most recovering addicts is on par with relapse for many chronic managed diseases such as asthma and hypertension. So I know at age 34 that I haven't had my last asthma attack. I know it. I can 100% say I haven't had my last asthma attack. And I wouldn't say that no one would call me a failure if I said that. I'm sure there are some people who would be like, 
you could do it. You just need to get better treatment. But overall, most people would be like, that's reasonable. That's a healthy perception to say that you'll probably have another asthma attack. That's not the attitude we give addicts. When an addict says, I'm concerned I'm going to relapse. I feel like this is a, this is a legitimate concern for us. We're like, no, you're doing so good. Why would you say that? Why would you jinx yourself? Why don't you have faith? Don't you believe in a higher power? Which leads to a whole nother set of stigma. Exactly. Yes. And I, obviously anyone listening to this podcast knows that the, the five people on this podcast are probably don't have a great amount of stigma attack. Like we don't believe that there should be a lot of stigma attached to these things, but I would be lying if I said that I'd never thought about it that way. I hadn't, I'd never thought that someone trying to battle through active recovery is going through the same thing that I'm going through trying to battle to not have an asthma attack. Again, it's not exactly parallel, but it is worth noting statistically. It's statistically significant that the road to recovery from addiction is very similar to the road to recovery for anyone battling chronic but easily managed physical health diseases. It's amazing. I've never thought of it that way either. I have an autoimmune disease and I know I have flare-ups and stuff and I have really no control over it. I can do everything right and sometimes I just, my body can't take it. Yeah. I think I, I understand how, how it can be the same thing, but with the mind. I would challenge anyone who has anyone, any autoimmune disease, asthma, COPD, hypertension, any of those things that, yeah, we know they're manageable, you know, yours may be a little more or less managed than someone else, but we know there's treatments and medications and lifestyle changes. We know that even with all those things, you might have a flare up, you might have an asthma attack, you might have a period of higher blood pressure where you have to be put on a new medication. Give those in active recovery the same compassion that you would give that person who's saying, I'm having a flare up. I don't know what I did. I, I didn't think I ate gluten and yet here I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe. We're going to be releasing a new episode every Tuesday. So check it out.